0: Five, four, three, two, one, go. Go. (laughs) There was a tiny delay. It doesn't matter. That was hilarious. I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. And And welcome welcome to to
0: School of
2: Movies. (laughs) Return to Oz. This summer, Walt Disney Pictures presents a motion picture fantasy adventure beyond your fondest imagination. You'll be transported miraculously back to the Enchanted Land of Oz, that magical kingdom beloved by young and old for generations.
3: It's just a yellow brick.
4: No, Bellina. You don't understand. This was the Yellow Brick
5: Road.
2: You'll share with Dorothy Gale the shock of finding everything mysteriously changed.
5: What happened to everybody?
2: And you'll delight with her discovery of four wonderful new friends who band together against a wicked queen and the dreaded Gnome King. This is the Oz you haven't seen before. And this is the Oz you'll want to visit again and again. From Walt Disney Pictures comes a whole new world of entertainment. I don't just fly back to Kansas. Return
5: to Oz.
0: This is a commissioned show by Maya Santandrea, whom I immediately wanted to get on as first guest because I wanted to hear her take on this and why it clearly means so much. She did not disappoint with Labyrinth, so let's keep going with that down that track. Hello, Maya.
6: Hi, guys. Pleasure to be here.
0: (laughs) We also welcome back our Mortal Kombat Annihilation teammate, Jason Chewy Slate of The Mana Pool, who has always been a huge fan of this particular cult favorite.
7: Come here! Chicken.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's the matter, McFly? We are also very happy to bring in Kauru Nagisa of Sequentially Yours, who hasn't seen this in years, but used to have it on repeat as a child, apparently.
8: It's green! It's green!
0: And Kaoru's other half, Debbie Morse, who, like a lot of you, has never seen this before, so we get her fresh perspective on that, too. Hello. And fortunately for everyone, this film is available in HD on Disney+, Plus, solving a lot of our issues with obscure films from the past in a world where the growing majority of movie watchers are at the mercy of the ever-changing archives of streaming services. Now, I have a lot of written material for this show, principally because being a buried pariah with Disney now disinterested in showing you behind the scenes and making of material, especially for the films that didn't make them billions of dollars and industry-wide prestige, you have to dig deep to find interpretations and facts about how this was pulled together. A little history first. L. Frank Baum originally wrote 14 Oz books, starting in 1900 and taking 20 years. The legendary MGM movie, The Wizard of Oz, was based on the first book and made in 1939 and took several liberties with the source, but still followed the book. Oh, one question. Was the 1939 Wizard of Oz movie... This is one I don't know the answer to, and I didn't have time to check. Was the 39 movie actually set in 1939, or was it set in 1900? We all know. fail the Oz test. <laughs>
6: yeah. uh, that, it, that I think, falls under the purview of uh, research later thrown um, in after the fact. I
0: feel like because it came out in 1939, there's kind of a Depression-era Dust Bowl sensibility to the there's Kansas There's definitely
6: Fall. a Dust Bowl feel to the yeah. movie, but the books, I think, were always meant to be kind of turn of the century. Yeah,
0: right. Uh, so, so they weren't sci-fi set in the future during the Depression that L. Frank Baum predicted.
9: As, as a person from the Midwest, not I'm from Nebraska, not Kansas. What are you going to say from the I,
0: Depression era? <laughs> what, <yeah. laughs> what moisturizer do you use? Okay, continue. Sorry.
9: Secret. Um, I would say that probably in a you know a farm like that, mm-hmm. 1939 didn't look all that different from 1900. That I is would true.
0: suspect. That is true. Maybe they were just vague about it and just kind of uh, left it sort of there. That
1: would make sense. There's a lack of Nazis. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Any... Okay.
0: In America, who would imagine Nazis? Anyway, 46 years later, in 1985, this film was made by Disney, not MGM, based on the second and third books The Marvelous Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz. More on those in a bit. I always think about Tim Burton's 2010 film made by Disney entitled Alice in Wonderland, the exact same title as the 1951 Disney animated movie. Problem being that Burton's film is in fact a sequel to the Disney interpretation of the Lewis Carroll books, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland are Through the Looking Glass. It would be like calling Hook, the long-awaited sequel to Peter Pan, Peter Pan. It's not Peter Pan, it's Hook. It's a whole new story, and calling it by the same name is just plain confusing, and I suspect intentionally so. But while Return to Oz is, mathematically speaking, infinitely superior to Burton's Alice's Return to Wonderland, the two stories are rather similar, with an older version of the original protagonist going back to the fantasy land they dreamed of before to find it changed, darker, and torn apart by conflict. Now obviously, Judy Garland at 17 was older than 10-year-old first-time actress Feruza Bulk, but it scans that this version of Dorothy experienced at least something very like the events of the beloved 1939 film, and now her return precipitates a lot of complications for those who still dwell there. One thing that was retained from the Victor Fleming classic was the ruby slippers, which were not part of the book and were silver shoes in the text form, but were made red, and I guessed this one, and I was absolutely bloody right, to make the absolute most of glorious technicolour. They turn up here and are worn in dainty fashion by a gloating, pipe-smoking, bearded old man made of stone. These memorable slippers required a serious cash-based permission from MGM. The film on release in June 1985, a month before the highest grossing movie of that year, Back to the Future, the movie that Disney had rejected based on its filthy incest subplot which yeah. returned... <laughs> They were like, we don't want this dirty, dirty movie. And the people who uh, uh, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale were shipping it around to, who weren't Disney, were like, we want a filthy film like Porky's. This isn't filthy enough. So it was the wrong combination of filth. But it turned out that that was exactly what people wanted. But anyway, Return to Oz cost $28 million, and it made $11 million. Reviewers didn't like it because it was the polar opposite of the peerless Wizard of Oz because it was too dark and frightening for children and because it wasn't a musical. It's weird to say, I hate this film, it's not a musical. Especially in 1985, after years of people, studios trying and failing, and sometimes studios sinking by putting all their money into big, lavish musicals. But yeah, it's not a musical, there isn't enough singing, and I don't like it. But I mean, fair dues, do you remember Mulan 2020? Me neither and also parents all seem to feel the same, keeping their children away. Meanwhile, Cocoon, the sixth highest movie of the year, was all about octogenarians having sex because they swam in an alien's pool and got boners. It's funny what the public take to (laughs) heart.
7: Have you watched the uh, Siskel and Ebert review? Oh, Um, no, I haven't. Uh, Over time I, I was looking months. up videos on YouTube and spotted someone uh, that had inserted Siskel and Ebert's review. They spend the entire time complaining about remaking classics. And he goes, well, this isn't a, a remake exactly, it's a sequel, but... And then they spend <laughs> multiple minutes complaining about people remaking classics. Which has nothing to do with Return to Oz.
3: And the multi-million dollar special effects extravaganza that was inspired by one of the best movies of all time it was a complete disaster that's about all i was going to say about <laughs> you know a bad adult film is one thing but somehow a bad children's film is even worse admit it because you sit there even if you're a critic paid to sit there you sit there thinking what am i doing with my life watching this picture and return to oz was such a lousy film that i'll always resent that it stole two hours of my life <laughs> when i'm dying i want you to know if you're at my funeral i want you to know i'll be there thinking I could have lived two years, two hours longer or happier. I'll say a few words over your grave, he would have had two hours more happiness that hadn't been for a return to Oz. Thank you very much. This is supposed to be the film that was more true to the Oz book, but they made changes from the book it was based on, and they still made a trashy picture, a trashy-looking film with none of the joys of the classic Judy Garland Oz film. Now, let's see, who did you see in that scene? You saw the little girl, you saw the princess, and you saw the ripoff robot from Star Wars, and you saw a hen. Well, you know what I like most about the picture? The hen. <laughs> <laughs> I've said this before, I'll say it again. You know you're in trouble when your favorite character in a movie is a hen that only has a bit part. This movie was amazing. It starts out with Dorothy having, is being left overnight oh. at the house of a strange Unbelievable. Surgeon. Then she's given shock treatment. Then she's swept away in a flood. Uh, by the time the movie is is half an hour old the kids in the audience are probably it's scared terrified. Of <laughs> it was not an upbeat children's film no. absolutely wrong and i was so glad that the audience rejected it unfortunately i had to see it first that is true
8: it has more to do with the wizard of oz which was a remake <laughs> oh yeah wasn't Hello? there an earlier uh, uh, oz
0: there film? was a,
8: a silent mm-hmm. film yeah
6: Yes, yeah. There was an earlier adaptation that was not a musical.
0: Right? Did did it did it did it get kicked around because it wasn't a musical and they were like, you know, this thing of your musical, why aren't you?
8: It wasn't a talkie. (laughs) It (laughs) can't. Yeah, exactly. It couldn't have been.
0: (laughs) I gotta put you in talkies. Okay. So over the years, Return to Oz found a small but avid following from viewers who caught it mostly. I'm gonna guess on TV. And because, you think about it at the time, videotapes were like, I would like to buy this, your finest videotape of Return to Oz. That will be $179. What are you talking about? But uh, yeah, videotapes were quite expensive. But my guess is a lot of folks just like me caught it on TV, and for whom it resonated with very strongly. Now it is a curio that rests in the rarely explored dusty back section of Disney Plus, waiting to be discovered. So let's do a synopsis for those who haven't seen the film. I want to make this show safe for everyone and just say, look, we can't spoil it. We can just make it better for your first watch. So six months after the events of something like the MGM movie, The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy is living in the rebuilt farmhouse in Kansas either 1900 or 1939, we don't know. She can't sleep, and Auntie Em and Uncle Henry are very worried for her mental health. She keeps talking about Oz. They take her to a Dr. Whirly, who specialises in a newfangled experimental electroshock therapy to see if he can electrocute away all of her delusions of scarecrows and tin men. In the meantime, she has found a key in the farmyard that seems to be marked with an O and a Z, so she has no intentions of letting go of these apparent fantasies. The doctor and his housemistress, Nurse Wilson, scare the living shit out of Dorothy. She has also been seeing visions of a blonde young princess in the mirror named Ozma, who appears in the flesh and helps her to escape the hospital during a storm. She awakens, drifting down a river in Oz, and shortly thereafter finds the wreckage of her old house, which crushed the Wicked Witch of the East, who some of you folks might know as rose if you're into wicked it stands beside the ruins of the yellow brick road within an overgrown forest it seems the munchkins have been laid waste to and when she follows the broken road to the emerald city it resembles a dead war zone with headless statues of former occupants including the lion and the tin woodsman they have heads most of them have heads some of them are just seem to be strangely missing heads it's macabre there also isn't a single emerald in sight She is also accompanied by a chicken named Bellina from her world, who was unable to lay eggs back on the farm and can now talk. The major villain, the Gnome King, is informed of this chicken by his servants and is strangely infuriated. Dorothy is chased by the Wheelers and finds a protector in TikTok, a dusty old clockwork robot soldier who I'm gonna go ahead and guess occupied the dreams of Guillermo del Toro, as did most of this film. They escape and encounter Princess Mombi, a dangerous sorceress who lives in a tower and has an array of spare heads stolen from pretty young women. Locked in Mombi's tower, she meets Jack Pumpkinhead, who asks after his mother, who later turns out to be Ozma, the girl who created him. Dorothy steals Mombi's Powder of Life and creates a new being from furniture named The Gump best described as a couch with a moose's head strapped to it what can fly and she jack and TikTok fly to the gnome king's mountain as it turns out it was he and his underground dwelling people who took back the gems that the people of oz stole from them and laid waste to the surface Dorothy and her companions are tasked by the Gnome King with a guessing game to recover the Scarecrow, which Dorothy succeeds at. The King, who has great power from the ruby slippers made of rubies that he took back, goes absolutely ballistic when he finds out that she succeeded, and he eats most of the Gump's body. Then he tries to eat Jack, and Belina lays an egg down his enormous stone throat. He then crumbles to bits like the end of the Evil Dead, and the heroes return to the Emerald City, now restored. As it transpires, the now-imprisoned Mombi banished Ozma to the Mirrors a long while ago after her father, the rightful king, died, Ozma's father, not Mombi's, and now she has been set free, and with the Gnome King now dust, she can take the throne of Oz back and restore peace. Dorothy returns home in bittersweet fashion again, promising not to forget her friends, and goes back to her farm. Meanwhile, the hospital has been struck by lightning and burned down, and everyone got out save for Dr. Worley, who went back in to rescue his machines and burned to death. And the housemistress, Nurse Wilson, has been arrested and put in a very small cage, much like Mombi, most likely for her connection to some extremely nasty incidents in that place. It's never explained, it's actually more terrifying not knowing. In customary cinematic Oz form, Wilson was Mombi, the Gnome King was Dr. Worley, and the creaking wheelers were the orderlies of the hospital, and Ozma herself has a strong parallel with Dorothy. But now back home, the young girl seems less troubled, having resolved many elements that had been bothering her. So, we're going to do the rest of this show as freeform as possible. I've just got talking points, and we'll go roughly by chronology through the film. And I'll just kind of toss them out there, and uh, we can talk it through. Because this obviously had a huge impact on a lot of us. So... For the three who grew up with this one, is there anything noteworthy about the way you saw it or how it stuck with you that's worth noting at this point?
8: Actually, uh, I I have something really important on this one that I realized when we watched this last night. Okay is that I've never seen the first 10 minutes of this film. Oh, shit! We recorded it off of the, we oh. it off of the TV, and my version like started with Dorothy being dropped off at the uh, place by Auntie M. All right. So in my mind, as like an eight, nine-year-old kid watching this film, uh, first of all, I it, it seemed, even at the time, it seemed reasonably dark that I'm like, even my young self was like so wait they think that she's crazy because she went to Oz I didn't get to see any of the establishing that Auntie M and Uncle Henry are you know still love her and still are you oh know, good people and whatnot. Um, so I had I thought that they just turned evil somewhere in between those things I didn't know how oh. long it's been I didn't know how long she was at the thing I didn't know where the hell she got that key
0: or who Ozma so got- was or why this chicken was talking
8: yeah. Yeah. So like, you got 35 years of context
0: from? from just doing this project.
6: So, so Kairu, yeah. I, I laugh only because I had so many movies like that when I was growing up where like, <laughs> it was kind of like, yeah, like you said, we taped them off the TV and sometimes the beginning or the tail end just got cut off. Like with the dark crystal, I never had the credits for the dark crystal because Cut them off at one point when like when it started to go into whatever the promo was for whatever network it was showing on just cut it right off so I never got to see the credits for it so like I laugh because I relate to that so much like that would happen all the time.
1: Me too. Yeah, as an eight, version... nine-year-old, I
6: just thought this was
8: a really incompetently written movie. <laughs> oh. <Good God. laughs>
1: My version of uh, Little Shop of Horrors started when Seymour first brings Audrey out into the shop and they all crowd round and you get that angle oh, from yeah. Audrey's perspective where they're all leaning oh. over her. Audrey 2. Audrey 2, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you don't get like any
6: of the beginning of songs the or th- yep. any of that stuff. So- Absolutely.
7: Ow. Oh Ow. I must be the outlier here because the parents discovered early that they could go to a video store and, and rent, rent something and then just make a copy of Whoa!
2: Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> we did that choo choo <laughs> 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 <laughs>
10: huh
2: Wow, two VHS <laughs> machines. You must be rich.
0: <laughs> Hang on. You said the same thing for Labyrinth. Okay, you are being sought for VHS-related theft.
6: <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I, I need the fifth. I, I need the fifth.
8: <laughs> the Skeksis will be bursting through your
0: doors. <laughs>
6: Yeah. Ooh, yeah. as a poor
8: blockbuster employee i can give you a commutation on your sentence so
6: <laughs> hey, I'm, hey i'm a veteran of blockbuster mm. video too okay so we we all stick together that's like right a weird it's outdated it, glue
0: okay it's actually <laughs> worth talking about the impact it had on us when we were kids and obviously um debbie you can tell us how you can tell us when you feel most comfortable how it kind of hit you uh because you've obviously had to absorb a hell of a lot in in a very short space of time um i i I saw this when I must have been about seven on TV or maybe eight um, because it came out in 85. The thing I remember it from most and first was um, when you were a kid and you couldn't see movies, you got sticker albums and... This was on cereal boxes the month before Back to the Future was on cereal boxes. Back when cereal boxes had things in them. And uh, it, was, it was we were really into holograms in the UK at that point. So it was like a Back to the Future hologram and, and a Return to Oz hologram that came in with the cereal. And I was like, ooh, Return to Oz. I had vaguely remembered The Wizard of Oz, but I think I saw it when I was very, very small. But... When I saw the film, I was totally enveloped in the adventure. And even though it was dark, I was never scared, even though there are definitely scary things that happen in it. But then if you check out YouTube, it's like, childhood trauma, nightmares, I'm traumatized. All of these kids <laughs> just remember being scared shitless by this film. And I'm like, it's not that scary, is it? But from the no. sounds of it, yes, yes it kind of was. So go for it.
7: So I, I remember being a- scared by the wheelers. Mm-hmm. The wheelers, when I was a kid, just scared the living hell out of me. But weirdly, the room full of heads that all turn and scream at you <laughs> and the headless lady coming at you with her arms outstretched didn't faze me at all.
6: Okay, that's, that's really interesting because that's the one that got me. When yeah. I was a kid, like, we'll get to it, but th- there's there's a scene where, like, Dorothy's trying to do her creeping around. This whole scene is shot... I, again, pretty much like Labyrinth. This whole scene is shot like a horror film. Mm. She has to steal a key from a headless body, number one, that makes all these weird noises and she has to like stealthily creep around. Then she's gonna walk past an entire hallway of disembodied heads that are all asleep, go into a cabinet that like you can't see what's on the other side. Like it's a mirrored cabinet. So she can't actually see what the head looks like on the inside. Turns out it's it's the same, it's it's Gene Marsh. It's the person who it's is Queen playing Wilson. Wilson. Yes, exactly. Mm. Um, oh, you're all pigs! Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so she opens it up. She's reaching for this thing called the Powder of Life. That's what she's really after, is this little can called Powder of Life. She's trying to bring the sofa with the gump's head to life. Mm. She reaches into it. It's Frankenstein in the two over tube. a bottle in the process. It makes a noise, and suddenly the head wakes up, and she
2: Dorothy Gale. It's, 30, girl. it's
6: fucking. It is scary. That and
2: that, that bit to me
6: was me. the most bone-chilling thing I think I'd ever seen and heard in my life. That whole section put me on edge. That was the thing that got me. I think when I was a, a kid,
0: the wrath of adults towards kids was scarier than almost anything else.
6: Hmm. I can see. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Mm.
0: Because like I remember every time that I misbehaved so much that I just broke an adult and they bellowed at me. I remember exactly how they said, what they said, and it they, they stick with you. So I can understand why that that just that moment of Dorothy effectively transgressing a unwritten rule of don't sneak around my place and steal my stuff um, with, with this you know vile woman uh, played with. I would say Glee by G- Jean Marsh, but in both this and Bav Morda's case, she just
8: seems to be totally serious about playing this evil woman. I, I think that she has fun by giving it the seriousness that it deserves even though it hasn't earned. Mm. She seems to be enjoying giving-, giving gravitas to these rather silly characters. Mm. Mm. And then occasionally fellow- breaking like Bav Morda's boo. <laughs> yeah, that, that bellow
7: of Dorothy Gale could have been really cheesy if mm. she wasn't into the part. Yeah. She oh commits. yeah. But if she.
6: she oh, she says she it was much. such, mm. such venom and like, oh, like I mean, you you really believe that this woman is just gonna straight up murder her? Yeah. Yeah. It's so terrifying. It's so chilly. So, just to back up a little bit. Um, I loved The Wizard of Oz when I was a kid. I know a lot of people are like, eh, you know, I never really liked it. I really loved it. I thought oh, Wizard yeah. of Oz was great. And I never really had that weird, and I think maybe, and Debbie, you can probably speak more to this since this is the first time you're seeing it. Mm. A lot of adults who come into Return to Oz had this weird disconnect of like, is this a sequel? Is this supposed to be right after the tornado happened? Like why, like it looks and feels so different that it almost it doesn't seem to have a connection with the movie musical with Judy Garland at all. And as a kid, I had absolutely no problem with that. To me, it was just this is its own thing. And I actually, I, you know, looking back, on, I would say I actually like Return to Oz more than The Wizard of Oz. Even though I liked both of them, I gravitated more towards this than The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. even as a kid.
9: Well, I would personally say, um, well, number one, I was a total scaredy cat as a kid. Ah. So it's a good thing I did not see this as a child because I would have been utterly terrified. Mm. The wheelers, even still, I have to say, you know, like we just watched this last night for my first time ever. Mm -hmm. And the wheelers are still creepy as fuck. Mm. Oh, yes. It's it's kind of
0: creepier by not knowing what they're going to do. It's yeah. like, are they going to beat her to death with their wheels or savage her with their mouths hidden beneath heads with second faces on them? And what is going on here?
9: Yeah, they very, very definitely read as inhuman, especially they read as they may have once been human and they are very definitely not anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think that's, you know, that is terrifying in both the, just the sight of them and the
6: implications of it. But I think the sound design really, like, it it lends itself to that feeling as well, because it's a callback to, like you said, Alex, the the orderlies pushing the hospital beds around. So Mm. it's almost like they've become this weird, like, fusion of people and the hospital beds, which is a really unsettling thing to think about. And they add
9: to that because I was definitely noticing in that hospital the way whatever filming technique they used, that it shows those hallways look too narrow. Mm. Yeah. And especially when it's from Dorothy's perspective, they are very, very tall and very, very narrow. And they look like they should barely accommodate one person as opposed to, like, a gurney. And so it, it really... Adds to the strangeness
6: hmm. of that place, which I think influences the entire feel of the rest of the film. Oh yeah, it,
7: it's claustrophobic.
6: Like the walls are closing in on you. Mm hmm. Exactly.
7: And once um, they get to the uh, <clears throat> hospital, let's say, <laughs> I noticed that the the way that the movie was shot started to get weird. <laughs> Like um, like there were there were shots of of like focus like when when Auntie M left, the camera turned and watched her leave, and then as she went out the door, it, it focused on her. It zoomed in even more on her leaving without turning around and saying goodbye again or something. And then from there until she wakes up in oz, like shots just linger too long, and there are Bizarre, awkward pauses where no one's no one's saying anything and nothing's happening. Yeah, and it's just it's just unsettling, even from the cinematography. Never mind what's actually going on in the setting and all that. Mm. It, it it goes mm. all the way down to the the filmmaking process to make you go, uh, I don't like it. Yeah, and <laughs> like
6: even like you said, like the walls. Every the hallways look too narrow. The walls kind of have this uh it's a very institutional look so it's like mm-hmm. the walls are painted this like drab gray and like hospital green so it's meant to look very unsettling you know it's meant to look very institutional and upsetting almost mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in relation to you know talking about a good
9: i didn't watch it as a kid but also in relation to what you're talking about maya um I I feel like it didn't I didn't find it particularly more jarring than the original Wizard of Oz um, because partially probably because I also didn't watch The Wizard of Oz as a small child um, I think I, I think I first watched it as in my late teens maybe early 20s somewhere in there um, so I had a largely adult brain at the, at the time when I saw it so it I don't know. I just interpreted this as being a somewhat more grown-up take on the on on the original. So mm. it it was dark and gritty, but it felt like like this still feels like Oz, and like that movie seems to have it. It's bright and cheery, but there is horror lurking, like the original. Oh I mean. yeah, there's, there's some is, uncanny there's, stuff there oh yeah, there's all manner of horror that's lurking either just beneath the surface or just out of frame. And so, no, this just seems like, no, we're seeing Oz with a little
0: more grown up eyes mm. There's so didn't,
9: uh, uh, it, I didn't find it jarring
1: at all a
0: okay. similar all unspecified right. threat of I'll get you my pretty and your little dog too and it's like what exactly are you going to do
1: mm. well you've got this there's, pre-context there's yeah. for Momby being as terrifying as she is because mm. not only have you got the hangover implications of the Wicked Witch of the West mm. uh, from mm-hmm. uh, the original Wizard of Oz you've also got Elphaba. the uh, the parallel with the fact that she is being played by the actress who plays Nurse Wilson They're there are elements of her design that come across from Wilson to Mombi as well. Yeah, although definitely. her colour palette Ooh. is very different. If you look at, at Mombi's dress, at uh, sorry Nurse Wilson's dress, she's designed to look almost like a crow. She's all in black. She's got these spiky shoulders, and around mm-hmm. her collar is what looks like. Feather shapes—they may not actually be feathers. That seems like something that would be very impractical yeah. for wearing in a clinic. But she has these little things that stick out of her collar that look like feathers from a distance. And when you see Mombi's outfit, obviously it's much more gilt and it's, gold, and there's a lot more colours in. It's spikes. But it's mm. exactly—it's spikes and and all of that stuff around her throat. They're like they're like peacock feathers. They're very sort of mm-hmm. everybody look at me. But they do then give you enough of an echo of that uh, that earlier character who was immediately set up to be a threat, not. Only does she, uh, does, does she like she's aggressive with Dorothy? She ties her down, she takes away from her the one, um, and, and I'll, I'll get into talking about the this a little pail. bit later. But the lunch yeah. pail we won't need mm. that. basically, Auntie M is virtually incapable of providing Dorothy with any nurturing. The lunch pail is the one thing that she is able to give her, and Wilson takes that away,
6: yeah, yeah there's also a a very very i think deliberate parallel with the first time we're introduced to miss wilson it focuses on a key that's hanging around like around her waist it's oh, like kind nice. of dangling down near her leg the key yeah. and like it's dangling are and really, i didn't even know really it. important in this movie but especially for that because later on she's very much tied up with that ruby key that is like Literally, the key to Dorothy's freedom. Mm. And the very first shot of Miss Wilson is right on that key for like the entire building, presumably. Oh. Mm. I it.
0: And I am yeah. disinclined to believe that any of this is accidental. This was directed, this is the sole Not directorial feature film of Walter Murch, uh, who is widely known around the industry as being one of the greatest sound and video editors. Uh, of all time, he uh, was behind one or other of the departments for Godfather 2, II, Godfather 3, Apocalypse Now, American Graffiti, THX 1138, Ghost, The English Patient, The Talented oh. Mr. Ripley, The Wolfman, a whole host of, of The Conversation wow. with uh, Gene Hackman, oh, yeah. a whole host of others. Yeah, so Very long career. Speaking as someone who's probably a better editor than I am anything else, I, I can I can say I, I trust Walter Murch's decisions with the film obviously those decisions didn't necessarily come off well with other critics or audiences but it does still feel like he made the film he wanted to make
1: Mm. i think there is a there is a difference between directors who are good at directing because they want to tell flowing stories that all weave in and out of each other Mm. and directors who are able to take pieces of something and put them together in such a way that, that that meaning is communicated to the audience. And I think Walter Murch falls into the second category. Yeah,
6: yeah definitely. And I think especially because this, we kind of set this up almost like the sister show to Labyrinth. <laughs> hmm. So in the Labyrinth show, we talked a lot about how the things in Sarah's bedroom kind of seeded the mm-hmm. rest of how the story would play out. To me, the seeding of the way the rest of the story plays out in Return to Oz is in Dr. Worley's office. Mm-hmm. Because, the and again, very small details, but absolutely deliberate. The very first thing we see of Dr. Worley is a ruby, ruby ring, ring yeah. on his pinky uh-huh. and uh-huh. he's you know kind of examining the key that Dorothy had found on the on the farmhouse and then you pull back and see that his office is is beautiful it's really really beautiful you know the way he set it up but it's full of these little knickknacks there's lamps everywhere there's little ornaments on his desk he's got like this giant conch shell kind of off to one side so it's 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 nice to look at but it's very cluttered there's a lot of stuff there that doesn't really seem to serve a purpose or a function other than to be just decorative mm-hmm. so yeah. It looks really like
8: Doctor Chenard's office in Hellraiser
1: 2. <laughs> <laughs> You've also got the, um, the the electrotherapy machine itself is designed mm. to look like a face. It yes. looks like the Tin Woodsman or TikTok. It immediately yeah. puts you yeah. in yeah. mind of that that sort of um, Oz being a. Um, an anthropomorphization of the the things that Dorothy is feeling, and a, mm. a way to externalize the things that she's feeling. But also, there's a parallel between um the the attitude of the Gnome King to the things that are the core of Oz, the, the jewels and the the emeralds specifically, that he's resentful, he perceives they've been taken away from him and are, are you know, by virtue of what, I'm not entirely sure, um, his possession to, to sort of have rights over. And he seems to have a very similar attitude towards people's mental states. I'm the expert, I'm the person who has all this technology, I have control and the right to say whether or not you are mentally healthy or not. Yeah,
6: and I think that the the really insidious thing about it is that and and you see this with both Dr. Worley and oh, the Gnome King is that they seem like such like genteel, kind people on the
1: surface. But the never things trust that they the actually, rich white man. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> but
6: the things that they do are so horrible in in reality. Like what's lying underneath that very kindly, very wise old man exterior is is really quite Sick, mm.
1: and that was one of the founding threads of psychology in the early days. He he yes. he is Sigmund Freud, effectively in the way he looks, the beard and everything. It's it's this sort of you know, well, you're you're a man and you're old and you've had um, lengthy education, therefore you must know more than me about my instinctive feelings about what's going on in my head. <laughs> Oh yeah that Aunt Em
6: just implicitly puts all of her trust into this man she sees the and if if i if i'm allowed to go in a little bit of a, a little bit of a rant here about some of the practices cuz i did a little bit of research this Thanks. can be bonus material i don't mind but the thing that she looks up in the paper this little newspaper clipping that she sees very early in the film is something that was called the Weltmer method. So they've set it up as electrical healing using the Weltmer method. So the person that they're referring to is this guy named Sidney Abram Weltmer. He was the founder of the Weltmer Institute of Suggestive Therapeutics. He claimed, okay, this is all from Wikipedia. So he claimed his method could cure diseases through suggestions and hypnosis, a practice he referred to as magnetic healing. So presumably the machine that Dr. Worley has is just like either a way to sort of legitimize this practice or uh, just like this is an accessory to the actual method, right? It's got a little for on it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Weltmer asserted that a combination of clairvoyance and hypnotic suggestion could cure diseases such as asthma, tobacco addiction, and insanity. A 10-day course cost $100. So he set this up almost as like courses that you could take and, like, a, reg- a regiment that you could sign up for, for a, a pretty hefty fee back in the, the late 1800s, yeah. I might add. You in could addition- get shot hold- in the back
0: over a matter of $80 back in those exactly.
6: days. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to holding lectures in an auditorium that could seat several hundred people, he published numerous tracts about his system and attracted an increasing number of patients up to hundreds per day. He and his partner trained more assistants, in. and numerous stenographers were hired for mail-order business and classes by mail. So Dr. Worley is like a, 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 not a student of his, but he's a practitioner. So he mm. would have been somebody that was trained in this method and then went off to kind of run his own practice. And by the time I got to the the end of this whole thing of like, you know, members of – by the end members of the medical community widely condemned Weltmer and charged him with being a fraudster. I sat there and I went, Oh my god, this guy is like the is like a proto L. Ron Hubbard.
10: Mm,
6: yeah. like, I'm starting to work out why the nurse has been arrested. Scientology. At the <laughs> it's it's crazy. But that's kind of what like if you're Aunt M, you know, it's 1899. You've been living on a farm your entire life. Your niece is just driving you out of your mind with like worry and you don't know what's wrong with her. And suddenly this electric marvel comes along and it can solve all of her problems. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like I've I've tried everything else. Yeah. And this to her is like, this is my last straw. Like if this doesn't work, I don't know what we're gonna do.
1: Mm. And So you're yeah, about- I'm gonna-
6: borrow yeah. money from my sister and i'm going to send her off and like these people know more than i do they have electricity they have all these mm. things that like we don't even have yet and so of course she's gonna just give away her niece to this person because he's the one that's supposed to know better yeah. how
0: ironic that back in those days we were listening to ex people who claim to be experts too much and these hmm. days well,
1: this, no, no no i yeah. think indeed it's, it's... <laughs> Right. I think a a part of where this tipping point comes is that there's, uh, there's experts who are peer reviewed. All of their colleagues agree that they know what they're talking about. Generally speaking, there is a consensus that suggests that they are all well aware of what the facts are and how they pertain to the thing that's in front of you then there are people who stand up on stage and say well clearly I know what I'm talking about and all of the people who are supporting them happen to be people that they personally have trained or have a direct connection to them but there is a uh, there is a very lengthy period in history where none of this was regulated Mm -hmm. um, particularly in America because that whole wild west thing guess what it's not just to do with the horses the the whole sort of you can you can come out here and you can set yourself up and you can call yourself a doctor and nobody has the authority to say hey you're not a doctor because how do they know and that's, I think, where there is sort of maybe this seed of, um, you know, do we really believe the experts? Because we don't know them and they come from a long way away. And, and how are we supposed to know that they really do know what they're talking about? Or it's slightly different these days because you've got all the information in the world in front of you and also how many people are actually collectively saying that this is a true thing. But I do think yeah. there is still a little bit of that mentality of well, we, how are we supposed to know whether a real expert is a real expert or is just trying to sell us snake oil? Um... And, and generally speaking, the rule of thumb is if they're asking you for money, then there's a question mark over what they're doing. But in America, legitimate healthcare asks you for money. Mm. This is why legitimate yeah. healthcare yeah. needs to be free. Anyway, mm. yes. soapbox, yes. soapbox mm-hmm. to the side. You, you're absolutely right, uh, Maya, about the whole um, the, the use of electricity is is a way of legitimising what he's doing because around this point, this like electricity was this big new thing that everybody thought was incredibly wonderful. And so anything that had electricity attached to it was automatically, that's the new shit, I want some of that.
0: thought that electricity could do in the 1900s what people thought computers could do in the 1980s. They are like, oh, just tap, 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 the computer did it.
1: Absolutely, and what people thought nuclear power could do in the 1950s. There's always something that is being sold as, this is the hot shit, it can do whatever you need it to do and it will solve all of your problems exactly and when it's a new field Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and when it's a new field there is a lack of experts to say to people no it doesn't do that
0: I think we were discussing this last time yeah. we saw the film. You said there was some validity to electroshock therapy in some cases.
1: It's it's mm-hmm. really really tricky because there are there are many people who have had ECT, and particularly in its more modern incarnations, where much lower currents are used and it's it's a lot more targeted than it used to be. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's helped them and they really feel that there is a, a legitimate purpose to it the issue that i have with it is you can't see where those electric currents are going i don't care how delicate they are and how targeted you think they are you it's it's too easy to do damage there's not there's still not enough Difference between sticking an ice pick up somebody's nose and stirring it around—it's—it's just what it does. Imprecision is (laughs) exactly—it's—it's—and
0: the question mark over exactly what it's doing. Exactly the Yeah. uh,
1: yeah.
6: At this time, like the stuff that we're looking at in the film in 1899. So the modern procedure that we know today as electroconvulsive therapy was not what is portrayed in this film. Mm. It is very, very different Mm. to what is featured here.
7: It's used. Put these headphones on and then we're going to attach it to a car battery. (laughs) (laughs)
8: Yeah, That's exactly
7: what I'm trying to get to. It is used in cinema. Car battery. It is
0: used in cinema over and over again to reference an antiquated way of seeing mental health care and treatment. And it is used as a very violent way of of setting the audience on edge and going, well, this isn't going to help this person. It looks and resembles the exact framework of what we consider torture in our minds. Mm. And it seems like something that was done medically decades ago, as opposed to something that would be done now.
1: Yeah. And institutional healthcare that is basically modelled on bedlam hmm. is used in a similar way. It's a shorthand for, well, you really don't want to get into this, so you better shape up and not be crazy anymore.
0: Oh, that's what my father was doing when he threatened me with therapy. Like, if you don't shape up, stop being such a loony, I'll force you to get help, son. And you know what help means? that. It seems like we're spending a hell of a lot of time in the real world here and not really bothering ourselves with Oz. However, the entire nature of this movie utilizes Oz as a psychological construct that mirrors Dorothy's reality very much like Pan's Labyrinth. And again, like I said, this feels like it it entered into Guillermo del Toro's mind and never left. There is a direct parallel with Pan's Labyrinth insofar as neither world really eclipses the other in terms of what what is really important you can back when we covered pan's labyrinth and we we said well there is that drawing the square of chalk which actually suggests that the fantasy world is in fact real because she got out of her bedroom through magical means after being locked in but in in the same capacity both films and also labyrinth i was i always put say pan's labyrinth regular labyrinth because they are ways of exploring uh, uh in all three cases a young woman's internal journey uh, exemplified through a fantastical external journey mm-hmm. so we can now talk if you wish about Oz as a psychological construct and what's what it's actually doing to, for her here
8: uh, well, one thing I want to jump in on before mm-hmm. we go too far away is mm-hmm. that another uh, so a theme that or a motif that um, exists in both uh, the Wizard of Oz that we know and return to Oz and even more so in this is that snake oil salesman idea. Of course, the original wizard was indeed just a snake oil professor, whatever the hell he called himself. That's all he was, he, w- he was an illusionist, and he used that in order to gain power. And in this case, you're seeing it twice from Dr. Worley. First in his ad, which very much reads like like an ad from those times from somebody who is an unlicensed doctor. But also from the Powder of Life, which has that same type of label, label, that same type of advertising on it. And of course she got it from the Gnome King, who is also Dr. Whirly.
1: Indeed. And also it's worth noting that the Powder of Life on its own doesn't do anything. It's not until Dorothy says the words. It's possible Mm. that just saying the words would have brought the Gump to life.
0: I said more ham
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think the the, the first hint of uh, Oz as a psychological construct for me is the presence of Ozma in the clinic Mm -hmm. Um, the little Mm -hmm. girl the little blonde girl who comes and frees Dorothy from her position of extreme vulnerability of being strapped onto the gurney um, having already brought her the uh, jack-o'-lantern which is the kind of forerunner of um, Jack Pumpkinhead And Ozma, especially taking into account how she appears at the very end of the film when she steps out of the mirror, she is like this this side of Dorothy who personifies Oz itself. And if you see Oz as Dorothy's defence mechanism for coping with stressful situations, which if you read through the kind of quick capsule summaries of um, uh, L. Frank Baum's original books... Basically, every time Dorothy comes up against shit in her life, she retreats to Oz. This is where she goes to work out what's happening in her real world. And, and Ozma is like her, at this point in the film, is like her doorway, is the, the person who's saying to her, yes, a part of you is still here and that's okay. Um, you can still use what's in here to help you with everyday life. Whereas what she's been um, kind of... What Aunt Em, with the best will in the world, has kind of been trying to browbeat her with is, you're not in Oz anymore, you're back in the real world, the trauma is finished with, you have to get on with your work. You have to get back to being a girl who can help me around the farm. Um, and she's there's a little bit of that in um, Em's attitude towards Uncle Henry as well, because this when Alex mentioned at the beginning that they're living in this rebuilt farmhouse, the thing is they're not. They're living in a shed because the farmhouse is not finished yet and it's been six months and Aunt Em is starting to get really, really frustrated with it. And Dorothy points out that Uncle Henry broke his leg and she's like, nah, the leg is fine. The leg is healed the now. The
8: leg is healed. He, he needs to now. get
1: on was, with this shit. Was, she it is it very, very... It was the most
8: very... Midwestern thing I could think of. <laughs> yeah. He's
1: had three months. Why couldn't he build a house by himself? Absolutely. And, and she, has, and, and she <laughs> Obviously, she loves Dorothy a lot, but she does have this mentality of trauma, grief, uh, stressful situations. They are things that happen, yes, but then you have your allotted amount of time and then you have to put them away and get on with your life. And I actually... (laughs) I subtitled my notes for this, Return to Oz, or How to Escape from the Gender and Class Expectations of the 1900s by Dorothy Gale, Um, because a a lot of what she explores and what she goes through um, kind of come down to this, well, you're a girl, so these are the things that are expected from you, and in particular, you are a working farm girl, and these things are expected from you, and... Oz is her escape, but it's also her way of processing the fact that she doesn't really feel like she fits in those categories and and that those things that are expected of her are not things that she can easily put herself to um and and so the the whole unfolding is is her both sort of coming to terms with the elements of real life that she can cope with but also the fact that she has to be able to keep Oz in her head it has to be somewhere that she feels like she can dip in and out of when she needs to otherwise that real world shit just isn't going to happen
6: definitely one thing I want to say, just in defense of, of Aunt Em, though, because I do think she she definitely comes off as very strict and almost a little bit cold to Dorothy in the the 1930s musical mm-hmm. film. But in this one, I felt like I, I much prefer Piper Laurie as Aunt Em in this film mm-hmm. to the, the original musical. I think she shows a lot more compassion and... Even though some of the things that she does seem like they're very hard and is still kind of strict, like it, at the end of the day, she genuinely is trying to help Dorothy. She says, "I can't do this myself. I'm going to send you to somebody that I think is an expert, even though they're really not." There's a lot of uh, th- there's a lot of affection tied up with that. Like you don't really see Aunt Em being affectionate with Dorothy much until right at the very end of The Wizard of Oz when she's like taking care of her. She's kind of playing nurse to her. But in this, it kind of felt like Aunt Em was was being like a like a mom to her. Like the scene where she has to leave her at the institution, like that scene really got to me. Like I actually was quite surprised by how, uh, by how emotional it made me because I was like, oh my god, like she's leaving her her niece, like this person that she's taken care of for most of Dorothy's life. with complete strangers she doesn't know them she only thought she was going to be there for what a few hours they would prescribe something to her and then you know we're going to be on our way we're going to be going back home she was not expecting to leave her overnight and like I, I just have to trust these people to, to take care of of this child that I've been tasked with taking care of like that's a really scary situation from both sides
1: yeah she's definitely trying and hence the lunch pail and hence the fact that at the at the very end she is much more nurturing of Dorothy once um, the, the something gets shifted at the end something unblocks all three of them and we see that in the fact that yeah. Henry has now managed to be, to finish the house. Um, but the I, I think essentially, Antiem is is by no means a bad person, but her own resources are limited. She's Very she's so. only got yeah. the education that she's had as a, a as a woman in that time and place, and with those expectations placed upon her. And that's why Dorothy effectively has to go elsewhere to learn this stuff because she isn't mm-hmm. going to learn it at home. There's a little
9: bit of a weakness here, and and maybe if I'm misreading this, you know, speak up if I if you think I'm yeah, misreading this it. or I miss something. Um, but is the fact that in the original very specifically the tin man the cowardly lion and the scarecrow are all mm. the the same three actors of the mm. farmhands at the mm. farm mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. and there's there's a you know a powerful psychological bit of her having these support characters yeah, yeah. and i feel like in this movie there's there's a that's lacking because none of her allies, except Bolina,
8: are, I don't the see... Our, There's our definitely no Auntie to Emma at all. ...in the real world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. It's There's almost no like, like they're... ...specifically an antagonist in the real world. It is the machine that is going mm. to destroy yeah. her. I t- to me, though, I kind of saw that as,
6: to, to Dorothy, like, looking from her perspective, the machine in... Dr Worley's institution like that was something that was supposed to help her. Hmm. So she takes yeah. that intent of it and puts it into Oz. Like this hmm. machine was supposed to help me and it wasn't. Well now here in Oz like I can make that my own personal okay, my own therapy. This yes, <laughs> this can do what it was actually meant
7: to do from the start. All
1: right. yeah. yeah, and it's, the Jack o lantern like, head know, she brings that in as well.
7: Mm-hmm. We know that Worley's machine is 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 dangerous and bad. But all she knows is what she was told, and he, yes. he it was drilled into tough. her head, luckily yep. not literally, that this is going to help you and make this everything better. So, mm-hmm. And it's even got, uh, if you look, when he goes to wind up the thing, in uh, the, the machine in the very beginning, it's got the same uh, handle yeah. winder thing. It's got the same TikTok little does.
6: wind up mechanisms, yeah.
0: It does feel like uh, what they've done here is try to evoke, using characters from other Oz books, the feelings that you had for Dorothy's Companions in the original movie. So you've got TikTok as the analogue of the uh, uh, Tin Man, uh, Jack Pumpkinhead as the analogue of the Scarecrow. And I guess the Cowardly Lions version in this is the Gump. Uh, who uh, you know is a little bit jitter. I mean, we can talk about his existential crisis uh, if you, if you like. He kind of doesn't <laughs> know what he is. He's you know Dorothy has to explain. You're a thing. We've uh, brought you to life to f- to a- fulfil this task. And rather than going, oh my god, and just exploding inside his own head, the Gump goes,
8: okay, I guess I'll do that then. <laughs> Uh, but I love the Gump's description of the last thing he remembered. Mm. I was in the forest, and then I heard a loud noise, <laughs> yeah, and then I woke up noise. here. He's a friggin' Frankenstein! <laughs> Somebody <laughs> shot him. Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, but if you go to the poster uh, drawn by Drew Struzan, my favourite poster artist of all time.
6: Legend. Legend.
0: Oh, yeah. Just uh, responsible for so many, and uh, hugely influential on my own book covers. The Cowardly Lion is right friggin' there, and that is a promise to the kids that was not fulfilled. It's the artwork for the show. The Tin Woodsman's there too. They they almost oh. overshoot in their, this is gonna be like the Wizard of Oz that uh, they they do not include the gnome King on the front cover and they do not include the wheelers so it, uh, and Princess Mombi is a tiny little figure you have to search for in the far background inside her castle they're almost like going there's no big overarching terrifying villainous force that Dorothy has to go up against in this it's all just your old friends remember the the metal guy and and the the, the guy with like wood stick arms and then there's the lion That lion is in this for all of six seconds and doesn't say shit. (laughs) Uh, Not that I was disappointed myself, but it feels almost like Disney panicked when they realized what this movie was and their notes to Strutzen were, make it look like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah
6: you have got to put something in here that's recognizable from the musical movie yeah
1: there's uh-huh. there's something in that and and we talked at the beginning about this whole coming back to a world that you a fantasy world that you knew that has now changed almost beyond recognition and it did make me think this is not an uncommon theme in uh, in kids fantasy world storybooks and the two that sprang to mind specifically Um, were a a series of books that I read as a kid um, called The Half Men of O and The Priests of Ferris. And I think there were other later books in the series. But those first two were specifically about kids from our world going into a a fantasy realm in the first book. And in the second one, they return to it. And it's a long, long time later and everything has changed. Um, And... The other one is obviously Narnia and in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the Pevensies get absorbed in this fantasy world and when they come back in Prince Caspian, it's a hundred years later and everything, oh, no, 1, later, a thousand years and later and everything's yeah. fallen apart and that that sort of feeling that the this safe fantasy realm that you retreated to as a kid, when you go back to it as a, let's say, teenager, mm. suddenly everything is a lot more messed up and that path that was so clear and yellow to you when you were little Mm. it's all got broken up and you're not quite sure why Um, but I I really love that idea of exploring something that you recognize but it's changed and how do you reinterpret that how do you become a part of that again and I think having those old characters there as echoes was important but it was also important that they not dominate Dorothy's experience of Oz this time. Mm.
8: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's. Uh, I, When I was watching this, the one that I thought of was Never Ending Story 2, actually. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, story two. yeah, specifically Never Ending Story 2. Uh, and to jump off of what Sharon was just saying, um, when Mr. Coriander is talking to Bastion, Bastion says, but it's a Never Ending Story, I've already read it. And he says, but have you ever read a book twice? Books change when we do.
0: Wow. And That's more than concept. I expected from that movie.
8: It's yeah. a surprising... It, that one holds up decently well. Not great, but mm. decently well. <laughs> Probably worth seeing, if
0: only for Jonathan Brandis. But, uh, I mean, yeah. it, mm. does it... Yeah.
1: Was he in two? I thought he was in three.
0: He was in two.
8: No, he was in two. He was in I two. Was in yeah. two. Yeah. There's a oh, three? One, you
0: know. There's a three with oh, Jack yeah. Black in it as a bully. Would,
1: which is terrible.
0: It yeah. is terrible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There, oh, was a okay.
6: couple, there was, like, cartoon sequels, mm. too, if I'm remembering correctly. It's uh, weird story the never ending story
0: in fact after this recording we actually covered never ending story Two, the next chapter and the never ending story three as quick review shows which we're now going to call sideshows because they're not quick they're like 45 minutes sometimes i don't think what sharon and i do is really reviewing a film and they're just quick in relation to our main events so sideshows here's a clip Him and uh, Diet Atreyu meet uh, this the Rockbiter from the original and he's got this disgusting baby thing with him called Junior.
5: Oh, yum,
0: yum, Rocky. It's just, oh my God.
5: Yum, yum, Rocky.
0: (laughs) And it's all for nothing. Like, that doesn't go anywhere. It's just like, that's like a writer's room decision and not much of one either. Uh, Maybe you're going to have a kid this time. Yeah, a little Rocky. There we go, moving on. Uh, but also, like, when he gets to the, the city of, of um, well, Fancy Water World, the first people he meets there's this, what you described as a harp crossed with an armadillo, this aerobics instructor siren, and a, a man who's just a giant turd. Yes. The <laughs> This thing, is a nightmare! It is a bit it's of a, a nightmare. fucking David, like David Lynch and D- David Cronenberg had a baby. It's yeah. disgusting. He... If you can believe it, we actually ended up quite liking this film. And those sideshows, or quick reviews, if you will, are available on the School of Movies Patreon for everyone at the $5 level and up.
9: I'm using side note to tag on to what Sharon said. Mm-hmm. On when we watched it on Disney+, Plus that's at the, you know, you know how they, they bring up a suggestion. They put the, they put the credits of the movie. You've just been watching in, right. you know, small screen in the corner. And then they bring up a suggestion. what should watch next. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The thing they brought up next was Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Yeah. Nice. Which amused yeah. me very Same. much.
7: Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: what I got. I, I yep. feel like, uh, CS Lewis, uh, definitely was a fan of, of, uh, the 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 Oz books and if nothing else if the cowardly lion ever got turned to stone that ended up inside C.S. Lewis's head when he dealt with the story yeah.
1: uh, and I would say that um the the Narnia stories have influenced what goes on in here the fact that you've got the dancers in a circle mm. turned to stone uh the lion who's been turned to stone is so it in, kind of goes uh, back on itself yeah. wardrobe. so it, it kind of refolds and even things as, as small as uh when the gnome king gives Them the food Mm. and it's limestone pie and and molten silver that has echoes of when they meet the The uh, the, the tree people and they're all eating different kinds of soil but they look like actual food
0: yeah Uh Um, Bellina is a sort of a, a touchstone for this movie in that Toto runs along after Dorothy's buggy asking to come with her on this next adventure and she's like this there's no room for you in my life anymore Toto off you go back to the farm and then she ends up with this chicken whom she who couldn't talk in real life and she's just kind of friends with on on the farm or at least she invests in the chicken but there's and somebody mentioned this on one of the various YouTube things we watched today there is implications that if Bellina can't lay eggs she's going to get um killed oh. It's oh yeah, slaughtered. Well, it is. Yes. It is, yes. it is straight up stated in the text. But Belina the thing is,
6: is a laying egg it is or, sorry, a laying hen. If she cannot yeah. produce eggs anymore, yeah. guess what? She's next meal for but,
0: these people. But yeah. she isn't actually brought to the hospital. She just turns up in Oz as a talking chicken, which, by the way, convinced me when I was a kid. I actually thought it was a chicken that they'd basically kind of
1: taught to talk.
0: No, <laughs> that they dubbed her <laughs> voice on. It's the junk lady from Labyrinth, by the way. Why not? Don't you watch where you're going, young woman. Um, but and- that means that when Dorothy comes back and she's just having fun on the farm, you can't see Belina anywhere. So I think I've just worked oh, no. out what's for dinner that night,
6: exactly. Like, that, that better be eggs. Okay, Dorothy just went to the doctor's. Okay, now we can kill her beloved chicken and <laughs> make her into dinner. I mean, like, it's honestly like clearly the, the girl who is the stand in for Ozma. She died in that river. Like there's no way she survived, Belina. Oh, she got off by Uncle Henry as soon as that carriage was out of sight. Like, this is getting dark. <laughs> Uncle Henry, where's
7: Bellina? She's gone to a farm upstate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll give her a <laughs> good but, home. We have a and farm And I did.
1: <laughs> okay, <laughs> so further, my, further my, upstate. My theory behind the <laughs> replacement of Bellina with Toto is again to do with uh, with Dorothy getting older. Toto is when she's a child, albeit that obviously in the 1939 movie she's older than Frouze Bulk is here. But when Dorothy. Is is kind of in her her young innocence state. The instinctive um, uh, internal impulses of a child are very well represented by a dog. They are um, constantly curious about everything. Mm. Really difficult to hold them in one place because they want to run about all over mm. the, the place and explore. Um, but they also have this this instinctive. They can take a path and you can follow them, and that's sort of you know go with your gut and, and listen to yourself as you grow older bellina however, is representative of this whole expectations of your, you, you know, your gender and your class and your your place in society. Hmm. Here's what you do on this farm: you lay eggs. If you don't have a purpose, then why are you here? And that's this thing well, that Dorothy yeah, is we'll trying to we'll call give is you another purpose. Pet. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's, I mean, uh, the uh, first, again, this is not an accident. The first visual thing you see that's in reference to Bellina is when Dorothy's talking to her, there is an axe on a chopping block right over to the mm-hmm. to the right-hand side of the screen. That's yeah. not an accident.
8: Yeah. Oh. Uh, for the record, I think Debbie immediately figured out why Bellina was having trouble laying eggs, though. Oh, right, why?
9: It, it's super nitpicky, but the chicken, when the, in the scenes with Bellina that it's an actual chicken and not an animatronic, that is a rooster! I was gonna <laughs> joke! And say it's a rooster!
0: So it's just down to these, these farmers who have don't know what chickens are. Eggs. Hmm.
6: Are you. Wait, are you sure? Because to me, like, roosters have, like, the big long tail feathers and, like, giant wattle and all that other stuff. Like, I,
1: Are we sure about that? Hang on. I. Right. I read something the other day that apparently. Chickens. I don't know if this is all chickens or specific breeds of chickens, but they they are born with, um, like the the females are born with egg laying capacity, and they also have these kind of inert um, male gonads as well. So if they're egg laying. Stuff they spontaneously working.
0: change sex. They,
1: well, no, like in Jurassic Park. They can well, They, can't, yeah, no, they well. basically, they the the secondary characteristics that would make them look like a rooster on the outside kick in, right? And they start behaving like roosters. They're infertile, but they basically start behaving like roosters. I
0: guess that's the answer to which came first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, also, I did notice that it did take a lot to drag Toto away from Dorothy. Hmm.
1: Um. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, i Sorry,
0: very sorry
1: <laughs> So there you go if, if Belina can't lay eggs Her purpose around the farm becomes Alarm clock
0: Okay, I want to explore that uh, You mentioned before And I don't want to lose this principle uh, You're talking about uh, uh, gender expectations hmm. You took particular note of the ornament game yes. That she gets charged with by the Gnome King For folks who haven't seen it He says, go into my chamber and guess the objects that I have turned your friends into. If you guess wrong, you will be turned into an object. Yeah.
6: Yeah. And Which he doesn't state outright. He lets them
1: figure oh, it shit. out. Oh, shit, he doesn't say And then he says what yeah. his intention is. It, until they've gone in. Yeah, stuff, they get three yeah. Yeah. guesses, basically. Yeah. But it's specifically the line that Jack says to her when they've kind of come to the conclusion that this is what's going to happen mm. to them. He says, "'Being an ornament will probably be hardest on you, Dorothy.'" Um, And his rationale is because you're used to eating and and sleeping and doing all the things that a human does, whereas we came from objects, kind of. So we're not going to miss something that we never really had in the first place. But. If you couple this with Momby's observation of Dorothy when she first meets her, she does that incredibly sinister little face cup and the you yeah, so can mm. see that you will be quite attractive when you grow up. And you understand that you're not at all beautiful, but there is a certain prettiness about, with, about you. The mm. implication being, I'm going to keep you here until you're 16 and then I'm having your head. Yeah. Um, yeah. It
0: is particularly uncanny the way they have Jean Marsh's voice coming out of the faces and, of, and, and heads of, much of these women. much younger women. Yeah. It's 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 really masterfully done. I didn't work out quite what it was about Mombi that threw me so much when I was a kid watching it. But then when you meet her, the first... Like, the first bunch of scenes that Mombi's in, it's not even Jean Marsh. Mm. It's <laughs> uh, stolen head women. Indeed. And then when she finally turns up, she's just much scarier. Yeah. And you first see her headless body basically doing the pale man out of labor- uh, Pan's out. Labyrinth. You know, just chasing after Dorothy. So you get that before you get the actual Mombi with her head on, mm. whipping the wheelers.
1: Absolutely. But if you combine all of those elements with the fact that what Dorothy is being taken to the cliff the for in the first place, is so that the uh, the electric healing that she is going to be subjected to can effectively kill the fantasies and, and mental wanderings that, that go on in her mind. What this is kind of coming down to is, right... If you're a farm girl, you work, you serve a purpose. If you're you're not gonna do that, then as a, a slightly more high society girl, you can be an ornament, you can be beautiful, and you can just sit there and let everybody look at you. But you can't have shit going on in your head because if you're just going to sit there and be looked at, you're always going to be aware that there's other stuff you could be doing that you're not being allowed to do. So that the uh, the treatment that mm. she's being subjected to is effectively um, a, a way of curbing... Those undesirable qualities to high society girls in the early 1900s. And that is what a lot of uh, quote unquote mental health care was at the turn of the century. It was getting women to shut up and sit down and be ornaments.
6: Yeah. Stop being hysterical. Stop talking. Stop screaming. Yeah, like stop having any sort of autonomy. Like th- it's the parallel is very literal with Princess Mombi and, you know, slash. Miss Wilson, because mm. she's literally taking her head. Absolutely, like and it's almost you... a one-to-one thing. Like she's taking her head with Warley and whilst the also Gnome negging King, her. It's a... Like you'll never yeah, be it's... quite
0: beautiful, but there is a certain prettiness about you.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, w- but with uh, with Doctor Warley and the Gnome King, it's a little it's a little more subtle because the thing that he kind of offers is let me siphon your thoughts and your autonomy away from you like he's kind of taking the he's kind of using the electrical machine the electrical healing to take people's thoughts and take their free will and whatnot whereas in in oz he's literally doing that but in a much more subtle way i think
0: what's the wording that he says that the brain is full of electricity and a lot of it is wasted and he's referring to everything Oz related yeah, like is just excess wasted currents energy. currents
6: and like yeah, yeah use, wasteful useless things and this is what cause our dreams and delusions. Yeah mm.
1: it's, it's uh, I made a note of the this line before that as well the brain is an electrical machine nothing but an electrical machine which as yeah. I said to you statement accurate the brain is an electrical machine but conclusion it's not, doubt, conclusion inaccurate Dubious. it's not nothing but an electrical machine because what it produces yeah. goes way beyond the, the physical yeah. parts of what it is
0: what Debbie said earlier about the uh, her companions not really being having parallels on the outside is uh, it's not so much bugging me but it's making me think now because uh they, they don't represent uh, external support for Dorothy. She is very much on her own. What they represent I think, and like we're going to have to think off the cuff here because I had not planned this, is aspects, and for, oh, apparently Sharon's pointing to her notes, she planned this, <laughs> is aspects of Dorothy herself. So I suppose Jack is like this trusting child always trusting in her his parental yeah, his, figure.
1: And his, Are you my mom? The, yeah, that's the, that's, Dorothy has a lack of mm. a an actual mother. She has a lacking maternal figure in Auntie M, who is mm. doing her best, but but can't bring her everything she needs from that that mm-hmm. educational role. Um, but also um, the ultimately the mother that Jack is trying to reconnect with is Ozma, and that is an internal element of Dorothy. Effectively, to get out of this, she has to mother herself.
0: More on Ozma in a bit. Yeah, um,
1: mm-hmm. TikTok. Um, the the specific elements of TikTok that I think kind of personify the things that Dorothy brings with her mm-hmm. is the it's in his instructions on on his back the thing that says he does everything but live mm. Dorothy's not living at the beginning of the movie she has this very melancholy music that introduces her she's struggling to sleep she's kind of going through life in a little bit of a fog mm. she's she's not able she's to she's
0: basically grieving for Oz like yeah. she, she misses it And that she's much.
1: and also the fact that she, she went through the trauma of the, the tornado as yeah, well the and tornado would have
6: been a process. very traumatic mm. incident also it destroyed
1: their house yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's yeah. a huge change and she hasn't really been able to work through it all properly, because that's not what people did in the 1900s, in the early 1900s. Um, but um, but yeah, the the uh, thing on the back of TikTok says that you have to wind. So it says he does everything but live, and then it specifically lists thinking, speaking, and action, and they all have to be wound up and activated in order for him to be able to, exactly, to to, um, sort of have this personification. It's the combination of all three of those things that give him the appearance of life.
0: But it allows Dorothy to separate out those three the thinking, the action, and the. Exactly. uh, uh,
1: Speech. Uh, it's uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. speech. speech, thinking, speaking, mm. and action. That's right. So, so they all have to be um, activated separately, and they can all wind down separately as well. So, if you lose mm. one and the others are still working, then things start to go wrong. But if you look at the um, the the colours as well in the the three characters that she spends most of her time with the early part of the movie there's a lot of um, very primary colours reds and and yellows and greens Mm -hmm. and who she ends up spending the most time with? They are green and orange. Green for the Emerald City, and then orange mm-hmm. has this sort of very um, there's a very nature based element to to orange. Um, but you've got uh, TikTok has the the copper body um, which looks kind of orangey, and then the green eyes. And you pointed out as well, it's his the eyes same are the eyes, the same as colour as for his Fruzzabulk
0: is was named t- mm. f- the.
1: Her name Farouza is from the, the Persian, Persian for turquoise, and her dad gave her that name because she has turquoise eyes. Mm. <laughs> um, She's and... a
0: wonderful performer in this, by the way. She had so much. Oh my much god, hint She's onto yeah. her.
1: so
6: good. It, it like Maritimes. it can't be understated. Like she was nine mm. when this movie yeah. was being shot, so like, all, she just went through the ringer. Like she has to carry so much of this film, and she does it. Uh, amazingly, like I, sh- as a child actor, like even you know when she got older, she was still v- very good. But man, this must have been such a hard role, and like ah, uh, she just nails it. She did mention and an just interview. Enough for
8: the Judy Garland inflections mm, mm. to uh, let us know that this is the character that we're familiar with, but for the most part, gives it her own uh, spin, which I really appreciated. Mm-hmm.
0: Here's a clip from the Tech Soup archival interview with Faroza from 2010.
4: My mom was there with me though, so she, every night before I went to bed, we'd sit and look at the scenes for the next day and just memorize them until I had them down for the next day. Um, it was a lot of work. And, and I think towards the end of the filming, it was a very long shoot. It was about eight or nine months. Um, towards the end of the filming, I got a little tired and that's when I began to realize it was work because it wasn't just, you know what you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. you had to get up every morning and go and and be a professional and as a child, that's kind of a hard concept to grasp and you have to get it you have to grasp it like that you know there's no fooling around you can't not go when you feel like playing you know you <laughs> you have to be responsible you i think it makes you an adult very quickly. The books are amazing the books are really amazing I've read them and they're just fascinating stories. It's also the idea of, I think when you're a little kid, especially for children, we all want to have that magical place to disappear to. We all want to be able to go to another world, like a world of fantasy, and we create that for ourselves, as children, when we play. when we say, "Oh, you know, now I'm climbing a mountain and you know you're climbing the steps to your back door, you know or or whatever, it's imagination, and it's an extension of that. And so I think for children, as well as for adults, it's like this whole world that represents that to them, you know, which is very important. It's very important to keep that as you grow older, and not to forget, because if you lose your imagination, you're like a hollow shell, you know, without, you lose a big part of your access to your soul, I
0: think. I think, again, as with Jean Marsh, she just seems to enter into the role with total seriousness and, like, inhabit Dorothy at that point. She's not just some... You've got, like, a lot of child stars just kind of come on and say the lines without really feeling it, but mm-hmm. she never does that. She's, like, totally committed to everything that she says. Mm.
1: I think a big part of that is with child actors, especially under a certain age, if you have expectations of them, you can break them. Mm. And I think that often results in directors not demanding much from mm. their child performers because they can't afford to. Because if they crack, they lose their movie.
0: And I would say Dorothy has the least connection to the gump, but the gump poses the deepest question, which is, what am I?
1: Yeah, where which, am I situated? Yeah. Is it in my sofa body or is mm. it in my moose head?
0: Are you familiar with the gump, gump of, of Theseus? Theseus?
1: Yeah, the question
8: of life is something that is answered three different ways by her companions Mm. in that the Gump is unsure of what life means. Um, Jack is very convinced of his own life and having been brought to life by his mother, by Ozma. Mm. And TikTok takes great pride in not actually being alive. Not being alive. I am
0: not alive like all of you.
3: Yeah.
8: Wow,
3: that's a good TikTok. That's Admiral
8: Um, Um. Ackbar. Admiral Akbar's the actor. Oh, seriously? Seriously, Perfect. yes. That explains a lot.
1: Um, by the way, I I am going to guess I'm not the only person who was like, "Is is Jack Skellington then a dead version of this Jack Pumpkinhead?"
8: Honestly, yeah, oh, dude, right? I was singing those songs the entire time we're watching <laughs> everyone hill <laughs> to the Pumpkin
0: King. Okay, so I'm going to just take us on a little diversion and talk about books two and three just for a bit because there's some stuff in here. I'm actually going to start a book three Ozma of Oz written in 1907 I didn't realise until I was going through the notes just now while we were talking L. Frank Baum wrote and wrote between 1900 and 1919 he died before the last two were published and he really wanted to write other things than Oz books but they were so popular and his publishers leaned on him so hard and he, he almost begged I want the children to want me to take them to other places but everyone just wanted Oz so it was just sort of down to him to broaden and expand upon Oz and incorporate the stories he wanted to tell outside of Oz into what he was Mm. being asked to do. Well, the fact
1: that he did... Dorothy was not the central character in all of them. He did uh, use other characters.
0: But she was the central character in lots of them. Mm. Of the 14, Dorothy featured very heavily. Now, starting with book three, Ozma of Oz, we'll go back to book two. Or to give it its full title... (gasps) Ozma of Oz a record of her adventures with Dorothy Gale of Kansas, Belina the Yellow Hen, the Scarecrow, the Tin Woodsman, TikTok, the Cowardly Lion and the Hungry Tiger, besides other good people too numerous to mention faithfully recorded herein. Good God. <laughs> that's the longest anything. You
1: can't fit that in a tweet, El Frank Bell, that's never going to take off. AKA
0: <laughs> Ozma of Oz. On an well, ocean
8: named Borat movies. <laughs>
0: On an ocean voyage with her uncle Henry to Australia, Dorothy is blown into the sea by a storm. She takes refuge on a floating chicken coop, which washes ashore along with the coop and the hen in it. The hen is able to speak. Dorothy gives it the name Belina. Exploring the land, Dorothy and Belina are menaced by a tribe of brightly dressed horses. Wheelers, who have wheels instead of hands and feet, they also find a clockwork man named Tick-Tock, who got his own book later on, one of the first intelligent humanoid automatons in literature, by the way, who joins them. Tick-Tock informs Dorothy and Bolina that they are in the land of Ev, which currently has no competent competent ruler. I know how it feels. Uh, it's (laughs) It's King having committed suicide after selling his family to the Gnome King. The three visit the castle of Princess... Langwider, who has many exchangeable detachable heads. When Dorothy refuses to let Langwider take her head and add it to her collection, Langwider has a tantrum and locks Dorothy in a high tower within the palace. So, a lot many of the actual events of the third book are what happens the events of this film, including the gnome king and the ornaments challenge. But let's go back to that second book because there's some st- in the second book, which will maybe add us a a little extra talking point. Book two, The Marvelous Land of Oz, 1904. So this is the first one he wrote after The uh, uh, Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which uh, was... Uh, somewhat faithfully refilmed for that second version with, the, uh, uh, with Judy Garland. Uh, there were, a lot of it was similar. The, uh, again, the, the, the ruby slippers, and there's a lot more sort of escapades that Dorothy and company get on that had to be cut out to so just focus the film. But the protagonist of the second novel, which reminds me, by the way, of A Horse and His Boy when he just goes, right, enough of the Pevensies, this one's Shasta, is an orphan boy called Tip. For as long as he can remember, Tip has been under the guardianship of a cruel, wicked witch named Mombi and lives in the northern quadrant of Oz. Mombi has always been extremely mean and abusive to Tip. As Mombi is returning home one day, Tip plans to get revenge and frighten her with a wooden man he has made with a large jack o' lantern he carves for a head, thus naming him. Jack Pumpkinhead. To Tip's dismay, Mombi is not fooled by this trick and takes the opportunity to demonstrate a new magical powder of life that she's obtained from another sorcerer. Mombi tells Tip that she intends to transform him into a marble statue and punish him. That's so that's transformed Tip into a marble statue and punish him for his mischievous ways. Now here is the crucial part that takes place after many escapades that unfold in that book, with Jack Pumpkinhead and Tip's adventures. Under pressure from Glinda the Good, Mombi confesses that the wizard brought her to the titular Wizard of Oz, brought her the infant Ozma, whom she transformed into a boy, Tip. At first, Tip is utterly shocked and appalled to learn this, but Glinda and his friends help him to accept his duty, and Mombi performs her last spell to undo the curse, turning him back into the fairy princess Ozma. The restored Ozma is established on the throne, the Forgotten Prophecy is finally fulfilled, and Oz is politically whole once more with Ozma in her rightful position as the Child Queen of Oz. Which means that more than 116 years ago, L. Frank Baum was writing, whether he intended to or not, a trans narrative.
6: Holy crap. Yeah.
0: Wow. Uh, disgust.
6: Wow. Wow.
0: discuss and you can also go on to what what Ozma represents in the film and how she comes off uh, as a reflection of Dorothy
9: it should not be understood and this this gets discussed on regularly but the fact of just how much to a child you know your your good guys and your bad guys in have are in some respect representations of maybe yourself but also of your family, your parents, your grandparents, people that you interact with regularly, and the fact that as, you know, casting those people who, you know, in real life may, you know, may be very good people and trying very hard, and the the psychology and the, you know, the thing that I think L. Frank Baum and the reason his writings have, have endured for as long as they have and been so resonant with so many people, is the fact that he understands people and he especially seems to understand children. And that that's really a pretty ahead of his time, I think, psychological idea that you use this representation of others and yourself to work things out in your head. And I think he not he gets praise for this, but I think he maybe should get even more praise just because it's it's a it's a really a good representation and I think it's um, I I think it's very empathetic and speaks speaks well to his ability of writing, extending to a potential, what we would now call a trans narrative Mm. which is awesome
1: (laughs) I think there is a tendency to um I don't know about anybody else who was a, an avid reader as a kid but a lot of the criticism that i got leveled at me for being an avid reader uh, was that it was all escape and that it was all to do with running away from real life and and um, that the elements of, of fiction that you retreat into are um are because you can't face up to what's going on in the real world and obviously there is a little bit of that there but it, the more important element of retreating into fiction is that you see things in there that do reflect real life and that you do recognise and that help you come to terms with that real life. And that's that's the whole point of Oz. Like I said, if we if we're looking at it as this psychological construct, it's like retreating into a story, that Dorothy has this world that she is able to reflect into and draw from, to help her engage with her real life. And that is kind of emphasised by the fact that she actually wants to come home at the end. She's not... She's torn. Mm-hmm. She wants Oz to still she be She specifically
0: there. says, I want to be in both places at once. Exactly.
1: And, yeah. and, the whole and then Ozma appears.
0: appears.
8: Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. And the whole point... For me, the whole point of Ozma in the film is that she she enables Dorothy to be able to be in two places at once. That she is a... Uh, the, the fact that she appears in the mirror, um, she is a reflection of her. And a part of her that is able to inhabit this uh, this internal world that Dorothy draws her strength from, and she's you know she comes out and she's dressed in green, so she's you know she's automatically associated with the Emerald City. She is uh, roughly Dorothy's age, but she has an appearance that is sort of a, a little bit more in that sort of stereotypically beautiful realm that Mombi had previously said Dorothy doesn't have mm. um, so she is kind of like an idealised version of Dorothy but she gives her that anchor I'm here, I saved you and she mm. she saved her in the hospital and she saved her here um, and given her motivation to do all sorts of different things when they're uh, running away from the clinic Ozma leads her to the river Dorothy isn't about to jump into the river but she's Goes in to save Ozma Osmer because Ozma's fallen mm-hmm. in, and ultimately, yeah, it's fell the, in. exactly, it's the river that takes her away from the hospital and to Oz, and that wouldn't have happened if Ozma hadn't fallen in. So there's there's sort of all these these factors that make this that, that in this interpretation, obviously, it's it's a little bit different from uh, from the tip version from the book, but in this interpretation, Ozma is very much a part of Dorothy that she is um, that that lets her keep that fictionalized version of of her world to help explain things to her as she gets older. And that is the bit that really, for me, echoes Labyrinth, really echoes Mm -hmm. the end of uh, Labyrinth where all the, the characters come back into Sarah's bedroom and are like, we'll always be here whenever you need us.
6: The thing that I kind of look at her, like this whole thing could be interpreted as, and even watching it last night, I kind of had this thought of like, This seems to me like Dorothy is like she's still very much suffering from this traumatic experience and returning to Oz gives her the ability to reexamine what actually happened, which I think is a pretty important part of healing from any kind of grief, any kind of trauma is being able to go back and look at it again and re-examine it and maybe see it from a fresh perspective and a set of, of fresh eyes.
1: Oh my god, think, yeah, it's it's huge. Yeah, that is like the, a- the a- fundamental absolutely. element of, of yes. dealing with post-traumatic uh, stress and post-traumatic mm-hmm. issues is you can't let something go if yes. you can't understand it.
2: You yep, don't necessarily think, have
1: to know everything about it, but you it's got to make sense to you, otherwise you absolutely. can't let go of it. And this whole process
6: is Dorothy trying to do exactly that. One of the first things that they come across, that she and Belina come across in Oz, is the dilapidated house that fell in Oz. And what does she immediately do? That's where the kitchen was. That's where my old bedroom was. Mm-hmm. This is where we fell on the Wicked Witch. She's reconstructing the whole set of events and then sees oh my God, the yellow brick road is broken apart and it's in pieces and I have to find out what happened. So she's kind of logically taking the steps and going back through her memories to see that everything is kind of fragmented and disjointed. It's not like I remember. Then characters like Ozma, especially, um, Belina, TikTok, all of the new characters that don't seem to really have like a real world one-to-one parallel they're there to help her through this process these are the things that she has made in her own headspace to help her get through this process and to help her get back around the other side of you know what i can come back to this place anytime i want Mm. i have that ability this was not taken away from me and ozma is kind of like the center point of that that's like her grounding influence like this is the way that she can look at it now not fr- from a different perspective, but also like that's her connection is this other person that she's created in her own, like, headspace. Mm.
1: And hence she leaves the ruby slippers with Ozma rather than taking them home. Like exactly.
6: Exactly. And I think the ruby slippers are also a part of Ozma because to me, I'm you know, like, last night I was thinking, sitting there thinking, the ruby slippers are so important to, you know, to to both films. You know, it's so important because it's the thing that lets... Dorothy go home. It's a thing of, like, everybody wants them. Everybody desires them. They are supposed to hold so much power. And it seems like it often comes down to, like, wish fulfillment. Like, Dorothy wishes that she can be in two places at once. The ruby slippers glow and Ozma appears and says, that can actually happen. Mm -hmm. You can come back here whenever you want to. You don't have to separate them, you know? So, I don't know. The, The ruby slippers almost seem to have this, like... This symbol of uh, of whatever you want, you can actually have because you can create it. Mm. Discuss. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. laughs> Sorry.
0: I was just gonna say thank you. That was brilliant. But uh, yeah. but yeah, dis- discuss if there's uh, if there's other roads you'd like to go down on that.
9: My interpretation on the ruby slippers is they bes- they have as much power as you give them, and like if you look at the first movie, um, the wizard tells Dorothy, "It's like you want to go home. That's all you want. You you could always do that. Like you you always had that option." Hmm. And then here, the fact of the ruby slippers are just an object, and because enough people believe that they can bestow do this kind of wish fulfillment thing, they do. But I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure they're per se an inherently magical object, so much as they are collectively believed to be a magical object. So everyone's belief together makes it makes it so, Mm. basically. And I think Dorothy has them when she needs them, or they come to her when she needs them. And then once she doesn't need them anymore, then she doesn't have them anymore.
8: Which, in a way, kind of brings mm. us back to Labyrinth. Mm. When you need us. Sure, yeah. You need if you need us. Sure, yeah. if you need
6: us. I just say, well, I do. Well, yeah. or Never well Ending then we're Story here. Or, <laughs> or, Never or,
8: or Never Ending Story 2 or any of these sort of coming-of-age films from around that time about escaping to another realm. It very much seems to push the idea that being an adult means accepting that you live in this world, but that doesn't necessarily mean giving up your sense of wonder and fantasy yeah. and that other world, which, you know, I, I know people like my parents wonder why my generation is still playing games and whatnot that, you know, they grew out of. And it's because, well, all of our media told us that we don't have to give up things that make us happy just to be an adult. In fact, being an adult means that we can decide what being adult means. Mm.
6: Yeah, Kyra, I think that's a really good point that the the main conclusion in a lot of these stories is integration. You integrate all of these things into your full self. And I think ultimately that's really what, like the combination of Ozma and the ruby slippers, that's really what that is for Dorothy. It's it's the part of her that is fully or, or about to become fully integrated, that will become fully integrated once she's, kind of gone through this whole process
7: Mm. I mean all of of us when we were younger saw the breakfast club and heard the line when you grow up your Your heart heart dies yeah I took that one to heart
0: and thought Christ never let that be me
7: exactly like all this media like you guys have been saying all this media that we consumed when we were younger showed us that that's not the the way to do it Mm. and then when we didn't do it they're like how come you people never grew up like what do you
6: mean you didn't do
7: it? Yeah, it's that's like, like yeah. when you say don't vote by mail it's not safe anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, well
9: and I think it's it's a part of like the, the thing that a part of progress major part of progress has been, I think, of society is the fact that play isn't demonized anymore. And it's mm to understand that you need play. Everybody needs play, including or especially adults. And it's what what play is changes, and in some cases it doesn't. But I think it's the fact that, that so many things you still need something that brings you that sense of joy. You still need something that brings you that sense of wonder. You still need things that exercise your brain. And a lot of those things that exercise our brains, like, are a form of play. Like, I love Sudoku. I'm, I'm, I'm a number, I'm a total number nerd. But that's a form of play. But it's also really good for my brain because it, it keeps stretching my brain and challenging and thinking. And, and I think it, it's something that we as a society are beginning to see and beginning to embrace, mm-hmm. especially our generation.
1: Well, it's in part, it's because play is about process, not outcome. The important element of play is what you're doing, not what you will produce at the end of it. And we have got stuck into this obsession as a, uh, a capitalist-based society. What's
0: going to come out of this? Yeah.
1: Retrieve Soapbox. Um... <laughs> what, what are you producing? What use are you? Are you laying? Are you coming out with the thing at the end of this that we think you should be making? Even so, to the
0: point where hardcore gamers are saying that their skills are the most important things.
1: Yes, yeah, because everybody's obsessed. They've with spent three hundred
0: hours of, in one game. It
8: has yeah, to it have
1: has come to, to something. something. Three hundred plus. Exactly. Yeah, see because, Jim Sterling.
8: <laughs>
0: yep. Jim Stephanie Sterling. This was recorded just before that announcement.
1: <laughs> We've got fixed into this society. Where you know everybody's got two jobs and a side hustle, nobody ever sleeps, and we're, we're fixated on this you've got to be producing something, otherwise, you are. Um, you're meaningless and mm. what point do you even have in society and so when manufacturing implodes everybody loses their minds because <laughs> what good are we if we're not making something and, the, and oh, this, yeah. this idea that there can be processes that have inherent meaning just in by virtue of what you're doing not by virtue of what you will produce at the end I'm so sick
5: Of all these people who call themselves
10: gamers.
5: (laughs) I see people who only have a Nintendo Switch and claim to be gamers. Also, dear all women, Pokemon is not a real game. Mario is not a real game. Put down the baby games and play something that requires some challenge and skill. For once, Royston, Royston, I put over three hundred plus into my video games. Demon Souls, of course. This isn't Animal Crossing. This is video game.
6: I think one of the most, I I hesitate to use the word toxic because it feels so overused, but one of the most, I think, insidious things to come out of the quarantine from this year of our Lord 2020 Blech. is this idea that if you did not learn a new skill or come out with some new set of something that you can now do because of something that you learned in this quarantine time, then you're a failure. You did it wrong. You did it wrong if you didn't come out the other side knowing how to knit or knowing how to bake your own bread or knowing how to build your own computer or something like that. And to those people, I say, uh, you can swiftly and thoroughly (laughs) go fuck yourself because
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I no. learned like, how to recover from a breakdown. Does that count? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. That I think Sharon,
6: you just nailed it right on the head. That is exactly right. So many of, um, so many of my peers in the, in the stunt world when like, I'll see them after I haven't seen them, you know, since like January or December of last year. And I see them again and they're like, oh, you know, well, in this like really quiet like, oh God, I really hope nobody's like, nobody besides you can hear this right now. Like I really just kind of took some time to myself and you know, I I just kind of relaxed and I took a break and I'm like, why do you sound like you're ashamed of that? Mm. That is perfectly fine. If you sat around in your PJs, for a couple of months and didn't work out and didn't train and weren't trying to hustle 24/7, 365, like, you know what? That is completely fine because this whole experience was pretty traumatic for most people. Like if you were like, uh, you know, experiencing this whole thing at all, this was a traumatic time. It really was in a variety of ways. So if all you did was binge Netflix and just go, what the heck do I do now? And like deal with that for several weeks or several months or the entire time, that is totally fine. Mm-hmm. And I would say that to any of my friends, like if you come up to me and say, I didn't learn a new skill. I didn't become an amazing uh, an amazing baker or, <laughs> or uh, I didn't do all of these like incredible things. Like I didn't learn how to throw a flip. I didn't learn how to, uh, You know, I didn't take up archery in these nine months or whatever, like... It's totally fine, dude. Mm -hmm. It's totally fine. Yeah. I support you and whatever. I got my dive master rating because I finally had the time to do it. It was hard. It took all year to do it. But since I had that time, I was like, this is what I set out to do this year, and I'm gonna finish it one way or the other. But if I didn't finish that in the time that I had kind of given myself as a goal... No problem. And I don't think anybody would have faulted me for it, and I don't think anybody else should uh, fault anyone else for taking the time that they need to just figure out what the hell
1: is going on and what am I going to do now. Absolutely. The world is in a state of emergency. If you are surviving, Mm. you are doing exactly what you're supposed to do. Yes. Yeah.
7: It's so strange uh, talking to my friends who are newly working from home. Uh, newly I use that term loosely because it's still Uh March but uh, (laughs) their work life balance has been thrown completely out of whack because they don't leave the office anymore they live in their office Mm -hmm. whereas me who is a a content creator uh, for a living my work life balance since quarantine started has gotten better because <laughs> we're
0: extremely like, lucky in that capacity.
7: Be- well, and it's because like I was sitting here at my desk all hours of the day and night, all the time, constantly for a couple years. Like it's it was bad. I had to make conscious efforts to get my ass out of here and go sit in a living room and watch television. But now that things are so bad out, out there in the rest of the world that my brain can't take it. And, and it's, I, I get the, you know, I could sit here for an extra four hours and get a couple more videos done. Or... But then I might snap. So, how about fuck those videos? They'll be there tomorrow. I'm going to go watch Stranger Things again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like suddenly when you don't have
6: a whole bunch of deadlines, it can actually be quite freeing because you. Are allowed that time that you probably would normally need. You're not forced into
7: uh, a crunch period, as it were. Mm. Exactly. And it's, it's, and people are like, "Oh my God, I." You used to complain about this. I see what you mean now. I'm like, I can tell you to mm-hmm. just stop working. Mm.
1: But you won't. (laughs) I am reminded. Because it
7: took me years to learn that, so I'm sorry. Well,
1: we're, we're structured, our society is structured that we work our tails off Monday to Friday and then we go out and get drunk at the weekend in order to relax from all of that. And that cycle has gone. Um, and uh, I am Good reminded, well indeed mm-hmm. um, but it puts me in mind of the, the bit in you know the bit in Friends when Ross is on sabbatical from work and he's like, I, I went out and I did all of these errands and now I don't know what to do and Joey's like, you just you described just did a, whole a week, week worth of stuff, stuff.
10: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pace yourself, it is okay to take a break during the day now <laughs> <laughs>
9: It shows it, it shows just how much, like it' it's, it's exposing a, very graphically the weaknesses in our society
10: mm-hmm.
9: and showing the holes. And uh, no, a 40 hour week isn't great. Like people act like that's a great thing. And I mean, it was better at the time than what people were doing because they were literally working their asses off all of the time. And it was a, it was an important limit, but that doesn't mean that the 40-hour work week is a healthy thing. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, it's not perfect. And to just bring it back to return to Oz, this is an important <laughs> thing for Dorothy too. She can't just be a workhorse on the farm. She has, she has to have that outlet. And I think it's really nice that at the end of the film, Aunt Em says, "Hey guys, it's a nice day. Go out and play."
0: Mm -hmm. Mm Mhm.
10: Nice.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Not get back to work. It's a nice day out. Go and play with. uh, Go and play with Toto.
0: And the remaining chickens. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) I'm just cooking in the kitchen.
6: What? Never mind that workout. Hey, never
1: mind. Belina's uh, in Oz, okay? I am not going to hear another alternative. We're
0: having hot wings. <laughs> us
1: in. She's
6: making chicken and waffles today.
0: Oh my goodness! Right. So I think on that bombshell, that will about do it for Dorothy's return to Oz. And uh, is there anything else that hasn't been discussed that I mean there's loads yes. of stuff specifically the, the events that, that Dorothy experiences and the adventures that shes she's on that we haven't really touched upon I feel like uh, a lot of them have will have been covered elsewhere and our deep delve into the psychology of it is something uh, that, that we are uh, prone to do and, and seems appropriate hmm. for us
7: yeah there are a yeah. few technical things that I just want to highlight oh yeah oh please uh Belina mm-hmm. the puppet/animatronic slash animatronic, uh Belina that they had was amazing Oh yeah she could yes. look
0: ridiculous by today's standards but uh she still looks absolutely like a chicken
7: and all of the stop motion for the gnomes oh. mm-hmm. especially,
0: especially when the, the gnome king the first
7: one that that drops down and says mm. she has returned the, yeah, like em- the talking he face. emotes he emotes more than any character in like a triple A video game.
2: Mm-hmm. These days.
6: It oh, yeah. the emotes better than like some of the uh, some of those uh Star Wars movies
7: mm-hmm. that I could mention. As each of Dorothy's companions get uh turned into ornaments and the gnome king gets more and more and more real. Yeah. And then when she starts finding them and changing the back, he go he regresses back to more and more uh, uh, bad uh, stop motion. Well, it's good stop motion, but you know what I mean. It's awesome stop motion. Like I said, it
0: really reminds me of Evil Dead 1. And when that stuff started happening at the end of Evil Dead 1, when I finally saw it, what would have been 10, 12 years after seeing this film, that I think I I sort of warmed to Raimi's Evil Dead as a result without even really knowing why.
7: I just love about that... that, Known king thing there, nobody ever points out, and he doesn't go. As I absorb your friends, I get more real. Like it's just left up to the audience to mm-hmm. realize it, and 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 it, it respects the audience. And I love that aspect of it. And he doesn't have to go look at me as I get more real. Nope, it's just nobody mentions it. Mm-hmm. It just happens. Yeah. Okay. He
6: very briefly mentions to Mombi, like you know. i, I Dorothy is about to make her third guess and almost guesses wrong and he just drops a little hint of like soon no one's going to remember Oz and I'll be completely human. That's really the only uh, clue that you get to to him being aware of this transformation happening. Mm. He is, but this is the the only thing that he really says to voice it.
0: Which suggests he's trying to shed his gnome physiology and uh, potentially just come up and rule on the surface
8: mm-hmm. yeah um, one thing that I loved about him specifically was the makeup job on uh, Nicole Williamson mm. that just when he's sitting there and he's acting through that makeup and it is so good it looks amazing and he puts a lot of uh, the actor puts a lot of really phenomenal expression into it so that you always have that sense of well i'm polite but i'm also wicked and evil mm-hmm. the he, makeup
6: he, kind of emphasizes his eyes a lot too he is a lot of really good eye acting through all of the makeup and the and the um, prosthetics and things
8: yeah it's like tim curry and legend level of yeah. acting through the makeup it's very good And he's all about
0: gaslighting Dorothy to the point where we don't actually know what the truth is because he (laughs) seems so convinced of what he's saying and how he's laying it out for Dorothy that that is his reality and everything else is forced to abide by it.
9: Oh. Oh. Mm -hmm.
0: I'm king and I have always been king.
6: Oh yeah, they stole these things from me. Mm. I never stole. I was just taking back what was already mine. Mm. Well, how Uh, the hell do we know that? Yeah, We know it. I was so kind Say of it. a bit of a quack on the surface, so mm. I mean.
1: <laughs> Guess what? I, I, Snake oil salesman, stop putting I, him in the chair. Yeah, through uh, and through.
0: You could read a colonialism metaphor in there in that the people of Oz took his stuff. But since it's an old white guy saying it, it's really difficult to tie those ends together. Like, if you were told the Gnome King was not the first person who ruled Gnome Mountain, in fact, he moved in and said it was his, you'd go, I knew there was something.
6: Another thing, just uh, this kind of ties in with some of the visual effects, like this film actually did get nominated for an Oscar for Best Effects and it... it, uh significantly lost to unfortunately cocoon um Ugh, fine, fine and bonus fair enough. there are yeah I know it's <laughs> it seems a bit like I understand, but nowadays when you look and compare those two films it's like really this film lost? Like come on.
0: Best visual effects in the same year as Back to the Future, I might add.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Uh. yeah. It seems very, very unfair, but but I just did want to mention that like even well, though you've this also was got to think not... about the
0: audience for Cocoon, which is most of the Academy.
5: Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. But I did just kind of. I think could that get was a,
5: border, a I'm
0: sure. Sorry. Yeah. What, yeah. <laughs>
6: but that was kind of a uh, cool Den- thing to note that like even though this was kind of a critical and commercial flop at the time, it still got recognized by the Academy for at least one thing. Hmm.
0: True. Just like Den- Click Den- uh, and really Norbit.
6: Good.
8: Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. That's okay. Debbie and suicide on a good squad. Sorry, uh, Point last time we were walking, actually.
9: Um, well, a couple of things that I wanted to mention. Number one, I love the door that the Gnome King, like, that he opens up to his ornament area. Oh, with the hands? his is wrapping mm. hands, which it looked so good. The stop motion was perfect, and amazing there. I, I I was absolutely enthralled by that. But also, number two, the fact of, and, and you kind of already made the connection, but very much the, the, like, rich old white man. This was mine. Someone stole this from me. And I felt like, really? This, this whole kingdom stole this from you? Really? Which, uh, in fairness may have some shades of imperialism in which, which is a very solid point. But on the other side of that, it's like, who are you to decide that you own this? So I guess you can kind of, there's mm-hmm. kind of a, a reading in both directions yeah.
8: there. That being said, who is the scarecrow to decide that he owns it as well? We really, because this guy is such an inveterate liar but he's not—he doesn't lie about everything. We don't know. We could—he could make the argument. If the entire underground is his, is his kingdom, yes, all of the emeralds in the Emerald City were stolen from him. Mm. If Egypt decided that it wanted stuff out of the British Museum and could actually take it, would we be—would we have a problem with that? And he sets this up well by asking Dorothy. If somebody doesn't want to give back the thing that you're asking for, what do you do? And Dorothy's response was, well, I brought an army to conquer you you. and make you do it. And that's exactly what he did.
0: Hmm. Uh, There is a difference between taking back what you believe is rightfully yours and laying to utter ruin those who you say took it from you.
6: Yes. Yeah. And he went for the latter. That too. On another technical note, I just wanted to add that I absolutely love the score of this film. Oh, yeah. The music oh, in this my is God, yes. so beautiful. Like, right from Jump Street, like, that very echoey, sad violin will never not get to me. Like, it sets the stage perfectly where you immediately know, before you even see Dorothy, that something is just not right. And uh-huh. it's a, it's just a, oh, God, just a beautiful, beautiful score. Um, I believe the composer went on to... Uh, his name escapes me right now, but he I'm worked on done... up
8: <laughs> Yeah,
6: I know he did a lot of like a very John Williams esque kind of stuff. But uh, but yeah, his name escapes me right now. David
8: Shire, mm. Zodiac Short Circuits, uh, taking of Pelham one, two, three, mm-hmm. uh, Saturday Night Fever. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The Care Bears movie he was the conductor <laughs> uncredited on that.
6: Oh uh, heck yeah was that the one with the was that the one with the scary book lady or the one yes. with the literal devil?
8: That was the one, with the scary book lady.
6: Okay, scary book lady, gotcha. On the same page. Ha, Composer of Hot
8: Lips Now and used music uncredited.
0: Yeah, it says rejected here on, on this. So that may have been how Walter Murch got in touch and said, "I liked your score. I was the Possibly. sound editor on that
7: film. Uh, do you want to do your score for this?" The only note of music that I made in my notes was the first bit of like happiness. Of, of the the first inkling of bouncy, goodness, because the beginning is so dark, hmm. and then she gets to Oz, and it didn't get any better. <laughs> and well, yeah, she when she crosses TikTok. the deadly
0: desert, it goes burp, 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 which is like the shadow of what will eventually become the joyful. We did it, and everything, all the yeah. Munchkins, and everyone are back at uh, Emerald City, and it, everything's yeah. been restored. Yeah. That, by did the way, that finds- those final shots where she is surrounded by both friends and mirrors. Uh, Uh uh, That is so challenging for a filmmaker to to, to film in a room full of people and mirrors and not have the film crew and camera reflected anywhere. I was
6: thinking that the entire time. I was like, how in the hell did they do any of this without seeing shots of the camera or Mm. any of the crew? The whole palace that Mombi is in, it's nothing but reflective surfaces. Nothing but. It's all glass and mirrors. Yeah, how is that possible? I it's. I was thinking. I that don't know. I have no idea how they shot that.
8: Also, uh, also, claymation art director is Barry Bruce, <clears throat> and I think that considering we're talking about how great this was, let's you know give a little bit of credit to it. But he did um, so he did the claymation Christmas special, which is one of my favorites oh, every yeah. year. Yeah, that was him. A very Harold and Kumar Christmas. He was on. <laughs> um, he's worked on Sesame Street as a supervising animation director. So yeah, he's, he's got some he's got some pretty good uh, some chops. Yeah, worked on a short called Dinosaur. Oh, he also did the Adventures of Mark Twain. Cool, nice.
7: And we uh, actually got to the point of the 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 music. It's when she finds TikTok, and he opens the door, and there's no Wheelers, and then he starts walking,
5: bur- and his bur- marching bur- music bur- right there. Du- yeah. Du-
7: mm. Is like the first hint of the happiness that Oz should be, yeah, because it's kind of you know, and it was, it it just made me go, ah, Mm
8: -hmm. and then he saves the day and he beats things with a lunch pail and everything's good, (laughs) yeah, and then everything goes to hell again, (laughs) yeah. I'm glad that she really wound up his uh thinking apparatus so that he could come up with a plan of I'm gonna go out there and kick their ass. <laughs>
6: that <laughs> was spin a hell of around a... real fast and hit them with a pail. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, hang on. Pons Ma, who played the lead wheeler,
10: was Oh yeah, he was
6: like their mime supervisor as yeah. well. He he did a lot. And I think he was also the voice of like the Gnome King's messenger, the face in the wall guy. Mm. I believe he was the voice of him as well. Yeah. <laughs> he he had multiple uh, he had multiple roles in this. Oh, he was Sarad in Masters of the
0: Universe. I know, yeah, the one Sweet. who was like, I'm nobody, and then Skeletor just kills him.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, now.
0: So, yeah, in summation, Return to Wars is a surprisingly densely packed film. There's so much specificity and attention in everything. It, it oh. really does, it, it, this is a film that rewards with multiple viewings.
7: hmm I, I just want to say that once I got Disney+, Plus. hmm the very first, first thing, thing I watched. watched, I'm not going to lie, it was actually a couple of uh, Donald Duck and or Goofy cartoons, but okay. the first feature-length thing I watched <laughs> was Return to Oz, because when I saw that Return to Oz was on Disney+, I lost my entire shit. Because <laughs> 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 I thought that this was an obscure movie that we would never see streaming anywhere ever, ever again. And now it's on Disney+. I went, oh! <gasps> because I didn't know it was made by Disney. That's not a thing that stuck with me when I was a kid. Who made what movie? They somewhat distanced themselves from
0: it, and it's not the sort of thing that turns up in there. You know, remember the magic-type trailers. They're just like, no, this didn't happen. Neither did The Dark Cauldron. Black Cauldron. And the the second thing I
7: watched was Willow.
0: Of course. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Gene Marsh double bill.
8: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, baby.
0: Double the wickedness.
7: And also, when I mentioned to my parents that uh, I was gonna watch it so I could come on the show. It turns out they watched it last night. That is <laughs> weird. And, it, and I was... Mom texted me, because on on Saturday nights here <laughs> on my Twitch channel, we do a watch party uh, where we watch two movies uh, that are on Prime. And... Right before we started, I got a text from mom. Hey, how do you find Return to Oz? Where is Return to Oz on Disney? And I went.
0: Just use the search function, mom. (laughs) I was like, I don't know.
7: Use do a search. That's how I found it. She said, Okay, because they were just scrolling through things. I forgot. I I think, as I recall, your mom is rad. Just scrolling through. No way. Yeah, she's into Mortal Kombat.
0: So yeah, she gets she gets five stars in my book.
7: And then I Mom, get a I text.
6: can't talk right now. I'm trying to watch Return to the Oz for my podcast. Sweetie, <laughs> I can't find it. Can you, help me? Can you help me find it on Disney Plus? Mom, I'm just use the search function. God. Go to
7: You say that as a joke, but... <laughs> but then I got a text between the two movies that said, Hey, we just finished it. That was great. And I went, We? so I called her this morning and said, how did you talk the old man into watching Mm. Return to Oz? The old man watches football and westerns. And like, that's it. (laughs) I got him to watch The Mandalorian because I told him it's a western. Mm -hmm. And he loved it, but he still doesn't see the whole western thing because he's very literal minded. Right. He's like, there's got to be hats or it's not a western. Yeah, he's like, there wasn't a cowboy in sight. I'm like, the Mandalorian, never mind. (laughs) But, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: See, I was expecting no. you to say like that she sent you a message going, Bro, I watched that Return to Oz you mentioned.
7: Bro, that's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I called to ask how she talked the old man into watching it, and she said, while I was talking to you on the phone, he opened it up and pulled it up. It was his idea. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered when he was a kid, like a very young... My old man, He's uh, he just turned... 73, I think?
0: So he is an old, old man.
7: Yeah, so he's he's old as hell. Uh, and so he saw Return to, uh, Return to Oz. He saw Wizard the Wizard of Oz, of Oz in, in theater. Not when it was new. It was probably, you know, hey, we're still showing Wizard of Oz, but he saw Wizard of Oz in theaters, and it scared him. When,
0: okay, so he sort of relied on that memory to sort of bring him back to this scary-ass 80s version.
7: Yeah, when when the winged monkeys started tearing apart the scarecrow, mm. he had to get up and run to the lobby when, when he was young. And uh, he picks on me because E.T. scared me, you <laughs> know, the part where the guys will come in in their radiation suits and they get him. And they deliberately oh, no, try to that.
0: scare the whole family. We've talked yeah. about that, yeah.
7: Exactly. So... He pulled it up, they pulled it up and watched it last night, and so when I called this morning, I asked the old man, did it scare you? And he went, actually, yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Fair enough.
0: It's nice that after all these years, he could finally see the sequel to a film that scared him when he was in short pants.
6: (laughs) And it it scared him while he was in a different kind of short pants.
0: Well, it's quarantine. You can wear short pants
3: whenever you are.
6: (laughs) Apparently, actually, the um,
9: when my mother was little, and my mom is in her late sixties now, um, a neighbor of theirs had was was had the Wizard of Oz on TV, and so she and her sister, um, they invited uh, my my mom and her siblings over to watch it, and it scared my mother. The I believe. I don't know if it was The Flying Monkeys or The Wicked Witch of the West scared my mother so much that she grabbed her sister and ran home and never, I don't think she ever finished the movie.
0: <sighs> right. I have beef with the critics in the 80s then. Because if they were like, well, this is too dark for children. Dude, clearly the 1939 version was too dark for children then. And children was
1: fleeing yeah, the theater.
0: They ran away. Yeah to buy milk duds and play stickball behind Old Man Willoughby's sweet shop (laughs) School of Movies is funded by Patreon we are kept going thanks to you folks who throw in even just a dollar a month everything helps we get to pay our bills I get to focus on all of these creative projects for you folks and our $15 sponsors get a special shout out every episode, so thank you very much too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outrich, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salgero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Lux, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. I think that's going to do it for Return to Oz. We will literally be here forever otherwise, uh, talking yeah. about just little bits and little connections. Um, so, to our wonderful guests, where can our listeners find the work that you are most proud of? We will start with Chewy.
7: Hi, I'm Chewy from the mana pool. Oh, hi, Chewy. Oh, hi, Alex. <laughs> How's your sex work? <laughs> like? uh, I can ask that as a joke when Sharon is sitting right next to you. I apologize. You always oh. play psychologist, Chewy. Uh, I, I do the Manapool podcast, and I also have a YouTube channel where I play video games, and I stream the video games, and all of that. Just anywhere on the internet, slash the Manapool, that's me. And, um, at the moment, I'm hooked on Hades. And in fact, that's what I'll be streaming later tonight, uh, once it's time for me to start streaming. Because, I don't know, I have to gush about Hades for just a quick second. It's brilliant! It's brilliant. Nice.
9: Chewy, would you mind terribly just synopsizing quickly what the Manipul is about? Because i I have heard, you know, I've heard you on school of movies several times, and I've heard about this, but I don't know anything about what this podcast is actually about.
7: Oh, I try not to go into detail because uh, if you don't already know, then you don't care. It's it's the Manipul podcast is about Magic: The Gathering, and the oh.
8: I care, and I didn't already
7: know. Okay. <laughs> oh well. Yeah. Like, whenever people find out I have a podcast and they're like, oh, what's it about? I go, you wouldn't like it. It's just a force of hat because I'm not one of those people who's like, yes, Normie, you should listen to my nerdy crap. So I just sort of wait. <laughs> I'm very proud of it, tough. but I realize it doesn't have wide appeal. But we talk about all of the essentially at this point, anything that isn't the card game. Uh, it turns out we're we're very focused on like the fun of the game, the the flavor of the different worlds and all of that, we very rarely talk about, you know, here are decks that we are playing. That's that's not us. Especially in quarantine when we can't even get together safely. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing, that sort of side of the show has evaporated almost entirely.
0: Yeah, you told me that yesterday and it's just this horrible realisation that just the fundamentals of what you talk about involve people getting close to each other and how difficult that is now. Mm. <clears throat> Okay. So that's uh, me. So, so that was Chewy. Um, Maya, uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess that you're... Uh, uh, well, I'm going to go ahead and know that your uh, job day-to-day has been somewhat affected by COVID. Uh, what would it be at this point, though?
6: At this point, it is a lot of COVID tests, to be perfectly honest. Right. And it's it's a matter of, like it's it's a very strange time because you have studios like Disney that are in control of all of the Marvel streaming shows where like things almost haven't really slowed down for them because they just keep producing these shows that they're making for Disney plus mm. i was involved with one of them as i, I actually told you alex um i got to Actually, I can't, I can't say what it is publicly ah! as, as part of my NDA, I'm actually not allowed to do it, so I have to be very careful about that because they're being very strict. Okay. Um, but I'll privately, I button, was able to good. tell you what it was. <sighs> it's a Marvel streaming thing, and they have all of the money. So they can hire very effective uh, people to run their COVID tests, and they're actually very efficient about it. And it's, it's down to a system where you don't even have to make contact with anyone until you are at the the station where they do your nasal swab, which is actually really, really good. Um, it's like a little drive through that you go through. So they're very efficient about that. They're very strict about keeping people in quarantine that do test positive and making sure that they're you know, doing their diligence and making sure that they don't come into contact with the other people working on the show so that they don't have to completely shut down. Other productions have not been so lucky where they'll have an outbreak and they have to completely shut down. They cannot move forward. So it's very strange. So if you're in a situation like that where you're on one of these shows for the run, you're pretty much set you don't really have to worry about much of anything if you're on something that's going kind of day to day you never know what's going to happen um it's actually it's it's very stressful for a lot of people because there's just that that not knowing you know you could be booked for something and then a week later it can completely go away because five people tested for covid and they can you know they can contact trace it to all of these other people and they just have to squash it and start all over again. Mm. So yes, I I have personally gone back to work since um, since the quarantine was sort of lifted, kind of, but it's a very strange time. And above anything else, I would say to anybody who cares or anyone who's listening, it is totally fine to stay quarantined. Don't let anybody tell you that you are being too cautious or that you're being paranoid or anything like that stay inside when you can go out for emergencies and for essentials delivery options are a great way to you know curtail some of that and if you absolutely have to go out always wear a mask please please always wear a mask that concludes my PSA portion (laughs) of this (laughs) announcement thank you very much it's just that I've I, I can I can go into a little bit of my personal life here. So my fiancé, Bobby, tested positive for COVID several weeks ago. Mm. We traced it back to a friend of ours who infected his roommate, Bobby, another friend of ours. And, like, we, we think maybe even a couple more people other than that. But that's, like, at least four people that this one person ended up, you know, uh, c- um, contracting them to in, like an hour of spending time with them. And it's uh, like, I just can't emphasize enough how this thing cannot be taken lightly. It can infect anyone. You are not immune due to your age or your circumstances. You have to, have to be careful. I do not know how I have avoided testing positive because I live with Bobby and you know, we had to quarantine each other in the same house. It was not easy. But somehow, you know, we were we were very strict about it. We were very safe about it. Fingers crossed, I've been okay. But I very easily could have a couple of days after he developed symptoms, had gotten it myself. And I just, uh, please take it seriously, folks. I don't think anybody listening to your show needs to hear that. But if anybody new is coming in, is like, meh, pandemic's over. No, sir, no, ma'am, it is not. Please be safe. Please wear a mask. Also listen to the New Century Multiverse written by Alex Shaw where you can hear my voice and also apparently, <laughs> and look out for The Suicide Squad which apparently is coming to HBO Max sometime and maybe also in theaters but I don't know. This is the one that uh, this is the new one with the James Gunn one? This is the one directed by James Gunn, yes. Ah. Gosh.
0: It better be recognized for more Oscars than the original Suicide Squad.
6: Boy, actually I, I really hope it's good.
0: Mm-hmm. I
8: really hope it's good.
0: Yeah. Okay, so Caro and Debbie, uh, same question to you two.
8: Um, all right, well, uh, you can find uh, some of the stuff I've been working on sort of behind the scenes and supporting at somethingghoulish.com, uh, where we talk about horror movies on a regular basis. Or you can look at some of my older stuff uh, that has been updated in a little while but still very proud of a lot of that at sequentially-yours.com where Debbie and I will both appear and we talk about comic books and comic book-related media.
9: And we are both on Twitter. Um, you know, Feel free to engage. We love talking to people. Uh, side note, especially if you have pet pictures, especially cats. I, I always I always want to see your cat pictures. The answer to that question is always going to be yes. Um, but also I love talking about um TV and movies and I we we have been doing a rewatch of the X-Files oh, recently. Whoa. Hey, and, conspiracy
0: theories at last. Yeah,
9: yeah. It's been a
0: while.
1: Yeah.
9: And um I did a thread that I'm extremely pr- proud of about just how good of a male role molder, male role model that Mulder is.
10: Huh. So okay. I,
9: I that I'm getting a lot, we are both getting a lot out of this rewatch of the show.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Uh, As always, folks, you can find the Twitter handles of all of our guests in the show notes. Uh, And we will be back next week with another commissioned show from our absolutely stellar lineup for this season. It's going to be the 2001 Gothic Chiller, The Others. Starring Nicole Kidman, directed by Alejandro Amenabar. Definitely check this one out. Don't let anyone spoil it for you. It is superb. Thank you once again to Maya for commissioning this particular show. I'm going to leave you with, rather than the score by David Shire, which we have been showcasing throughout this episode, and I think we'll have some of that at the very end anyway, my favorite version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow by the absurdly talented Hawaiian singer, songwriter, musician, and sovereignty activist who died in 1997 but lives on in his music. Israel Kamakawiwo Ole. We will see you next week. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw.
1: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And School's Out.
5: That's where you find